Southern Skies. Online Media. and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 51 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. Welcoming you back for our first show of 2011, I'm Steve Fisher, and with me as always is Grant McHeron. G'day, mate. Hey, mate. How are you going? Oh, not too bad. Survived the new year. How'd you, how'd you cope with it? Yeah, not too bad. I, uh, I, I really did kind of enjoy taking a break from podcasting just for a little while. It let me sort of regather my uh, thoughts and so on. Yes, we'll regather your thoughts. And uh, Grant, let's just tell our listeners right at the top of the show what you've been doing over Christmas. Oh, you know, hacking Santa's sleigh, um, kicking back, uh, working a lot in the office with the balloon. Oh. Oh. Oh, you're meaning that. Yes. Yeah, I I proposed to Kit. Yeah. And like a complete crazy lady, she said yes. So, yes, congratulations, yeah. mate. I haven't got the soundboard loaded tonight, but I'm sure our audience will uh, be clapping for you in the background, <laughs> mate. No, they'll be sending commiserations to Kit, I tell you. Yes, I know. There's been a lot of that going on for, for Kit. Yeah, I know. She seems like such a normal and well-adjusted young lady too. I know. Where'd she go wrong? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, she's she's, she's uh, going to get married to a you know self-confessed airplane geek. Aeroneurophocosis suffering balloonatic. Yeah, well, she, 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 at least she knows well in advance what she was getting in for, mate. Yeah, I know. She still did it. But uh, yeah, February 2012, that's when we're going to put it all together at this stage. That's awesome, mate. Oh, well, we can get plenty of podcasting done in the meantime. Yeah, at least one or two. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's our first show back for 2011, and it's going to be a big one, folks. We've been working on this one uh, right over Christmas, and uh, it's 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 taken a lot of work to put it together, but we're really pleased with the way it's come together. And, of course, this is our tribute to the F-111. Now, of course, uh, back in early December, the F-111 was retired from, uh, from active service with the Royal Australian Air Force, the last Air Force on the planet to be operating them. Uh, the United States Air Force, of course, stopped operating theirs back in the late 1990s. Now, uh, Grant and I, in uh, mid-November, we're very fortunate enough to be uh, invited up to the uh, the media day that the RAF put on for us to go up and have a look and, uh, you know, to interview all the crews and operational staff and everybody that's ever had anything to do uh, with the with the F-111. Uh, there was a lot of people there that day. Uh, we got to talk to pilots, we got to talk to maintenance staff, simulator staff, uh, and uh, yeah, boy Grant, what a great day that was. Absolutely awesome. Really, really appreciate the uh, RAAF making that available for us. Yep, so uh, now this episode, I should warn you folks, this is probably going to be the longest one we've ever done. We did consider splitting it into two episodes, but we'd like to think of it as a tribute to the F-111 and the 37 years of wonderful service that it gave to our nation. What this episode will give you is a bit of a snapshot into the uh, the people that, that look after this aircraft, the people that fly it and the people that maintain it, and the people that keep our crews trained up and uh, in the air ready to defend the nation uh, if the need ever went out. I guess, Grant, we were fortunate that that uh, need never really arose, but uh, I guess that that's a good thing in, in lots of ways. You know, it's it's done its job as a deterrent and as a as a force projector, and yeah, on it on it's moved into retirement now. But uh, hey, like the pig, this episode is big. It's beautiful and it's worth checking out. And Grant, in addition to the content that we uh, collected that day, the uh, the huge number of interviews that we managed to score that day, we've also uh, got David Vanderhoof, our historian, coming in to talk about uh, some of the early development history of the F one eleven, how it came to be, and uh, some of the operations that it was involved in, both in RAF service and in uh, United States Air Force service. Uh, we're also going to have 
with Brendan Cowan from ADF Cereals. The website adfcereals.com.au is going to come on and have a talk about some uh, some specific issues and some some interesting stories uh, that uh, occurred with the uh, with the F111 in RAAS service. And he's also joined in that interview by Chris Daly from the Save the F111 page on Facebook. Uh, that's a wonderful page, uh, folks. If you're not on Facebook, and we imagine there must be a few of you that uh, perhaps still haven't signed up. Yeah, the Save the F111 page is an extremely popular one amongst the uh, the you know the airplane uh, enthusiasts uh, and professionals uh, that frequent Facebook. So uh, yeah, Chris also joined us there to provide some uh, some information on how that site's going and uh, some of the people uh, that are participating in that site. They're getting all sorts of people grant from pilots, crews from Australia and the United States. Yep, maintainers, uh, lots of personal photos and stuff that you just don't normally see. It's it's an amazing tribute to the F one eleven and itself that page, but. Uh, Meanwhile, on with our show. It, it is going to be long, but that's what uh, pause buttons were made for. You're listening to an MP3. It's not a live show. You can always stop it and walk away and come back to it later. Yeah, but I guarantee you once you get into this show, folks, you certainly won't want to stop it halfway through. Now, uh, we're going to kick it off with the opening press conference. This is an edited version of the opening press conference on the media day that we were there. Uh, the people you'll hear here predominantly, uh, Group Captain Steve Roberton. He's the commander of uh, 82 Wing, of which uh, one squadron and six squadron were part of. They're the two F-111 squadrons for the Royal Australian Air Force. And also you'll hear in this uh, in this press conference Wing Commander Mika Gray. He is the uh, officer commanding six squadron, and uh, he gives a, uh, a real interesting overview of the F-111, uh, what they've been doing with it all the years that it's been there. It's a really fascinating uh, press conference and uh, given that the uh, the aircraft was still operational at the time, uh, they were still doing training sorties, uh, so what they actually got to do at the end of the press conference was get uh, one of the flight crews to come in and give the uh, give the media a demonstration of an operational briefing for the training sortie that they were going out to conduct uh, on this day. So uh, we're gonna, just going to pop that in at the end of, the, uh, of, of this press conference. Really interesting stuff to listen to. Lots of jargon in there, folks. If you're uh, an airplane tragic and airplane enthusiast like Grant and I are, you'll really enjoy that. Here's the opening press conference from the Media Day at RAAF Base Embley. Thanks ladies and gents. Um, it's a great turnout. really appreciate you being here, as does uh, everyone in the F-111 community. I think it represents uh, the strong interest that the aircraft has had over many years, both in the military, the general public uh, and internationally. So it doesn't surprise us, but it uh, does please us that there's so many people here come and uh, see us for our last uh, last activities. We've got um, a great great program for you, as Sky said. I'll hand over the OC in a sec, and then I'm just going to talk to you about some F111 things and invite questions. I have a range of people up the back from um, F111 maintainers, uh, aircrew, support staff of all different types that we can make available to you during the day, and then there's ample photo opportunities and video opportunities. There will be some aircraft flying later on in the day, and we'll get you in the right spot for that as well. Uh, so before I go any further, I'll hand over to uh, the officer commanding 82 Wing, who is my boss. Uh, 82 Wing is the wing headquarters above the squadron, so we have one squadron, six squadron, four squadron with a range of aircraft, and the OC is the uh, of the boss of that. So, hang over. Hmm. Thanks, mate. Yeah, welcome to Amberley. I uh, really appreciate everybody coming out here today. Um, it's a pretty uh, exciting time around uh, RAF base Amberley generally in the last uh, year and a half and in the 12 months still coming. A lot of new platforms and uh, it's not often during your career you get to be part of uh, retiring a legend and seeing three brand new aircraft coming in at the same time just here in the one base. Um, we've got Super Hornets in already, there's KC-30s uh, due to turn up in the, in the coming months. And of course the C-17, which uh, most of you be aware is just sort of down the road. It's a pretty exciting time in 82 wing as well, which is the parent wing of which um, F-111s belong. We got four aircraft types in 82 wing. Now for about 35 years, 82 wing was just F-111s. 
Um, and in the last 12 months or so, we've now got uh, Heron, uh, uninhabited aerial vehicles or remotely piloted vehicles, and they're over in Afghanistan on operations. We've got uh, Four Squadron, which does our joint terminal attack controlling, uh, our liaison with the Army on the ground, and we have uh, members of those folks over on operations as well. And they're based down in Newcastle, and they fly PC-9 aircraft. We've got Number One Squadron, which has already converted to Super Hornet, uh, introduced those uh, through this year, and uh, we're about ready to uh, to declare them operational. If I can, uh, just got to get the Chief to agree with me that uh, we're no kidding done all the testing and so forth that was needed, and uh, that obviously replaced their F-111s uh, prior. Uh, and then the focus for today, of course, is, uh, is Six Squadron and F-111. It's quite a big mix. It's an enormous array of aircraft types. Uh, it is important because although a lot of the capabilities that reside in the F-111 are not as, they're not as pertinent today in today's combat area as they were 20 years ago, the, uh, the culture and the training and the people that operate them has been absolutely essential. We don't have any fast jets currently overseas deployed within the Australian Defence Force. But the people that uh, operate, fly, maintain and support them are actually deployed everywhere. And it's that culture and that training and a lot of the people that you'll see around uh, here today which are actually what this whole event is about. Now, don't get me wrong, there is something about the F-111 that just people are just drawn to this aircraft and just revere this actual aircraft type. It's a great jet. Had my last flight myself on Friday uh, in the F-111. I'm back flying a Rhino this afternoon, back in my comfort zone. Uh, and it is amazing, though, to see where it's come from and uh, how... The people that have collectively come together and get the most out of that platform is uh, is an absolute credit. But while it's a great aircraft, and we'll uh, we'll have some uh, a bit of flying on today, uh, we've got a great array of experience. Some people who have been uh, operating this aeroplane, supporting it, maintaining it for literally decades. Uh, there's very little that they don't know about uh, how to get the most out of this. That will be the focus today, but uh, on the jet. But it's the people themselves, thousands of people who have served in the Royal Australian Air Force or in the other support organisations who have supported and flown and maintained this jet over the last uh, three to four decades. Uh, and that's kind of what this ceremony is about for us in the next week and a half. We're currently planning to fly our very last F-111 sortie in, uh, on Friday week. And uh, the CO, uh, Wing Commander Mika Gray and his team will hopefully, uh, you know, through next week, uh, the last Thursday, they've done a bunch of flights uh, around southeast Queensland and around uh, around Australia for the very last time, and uh, and we'll formally uh, put this jet to bed next Friday afternoon. Uh, it's a it is a very big deal for us. It's more than just an aeroplane for us. For many people, it's been the basis of their entire career. Welcome. I hope you uh, get everything you want out of today. We've got a whole bunch of people here to help um, answer any questions or uh, provide uh, any interviews or discuss anything you wish. Uh, in terms of the actual operations out here, <coughs> we are focusing purely today on F-111. We are still operating the, uh, the Rhinos, the F-18Fs, right next door. It's a dangerous place out on an aircraft flight line, so we can't have people wandering off over there. So we will try and keep you into the six squadron lines and with the F-111 lines there today, uh, and that is the reasoning for it because uh, there'll still be normal combat ops and a normal operational base uh, conducting. Hope you enjoy your day and uh, look forward to uh, meeting most of you and uh, answering any questions you might have. Thanks. I think the, for me, the, the interest in the F-111, I've been flying it for 22 years, which I think is a long time, uh, but there was people been flying for 15 years before me in Australia and 20 years before that, if you take the people that flew it in America. So 
you know, it's been uh, one and six squadron have been around since 1916-17, but we've had this aircraft for you know over a third of the time the whole squadron has been in existence. So it's in our blood. This base used to be the F111 base. It now does a lot of uh, has a lot of different aircraft types, but there's not too many people, certainly around southeast Queensland, and indeed anyone that knows aircraft in Australia can pretty well recognise an F111. Quite often they're asked what an F18 looks like occasionally, but uh, that's the boss's background if you're wondering why uh, he's already done his last flight. But it's, uh, I, for me, I think why it has um, such an interest is its longevity, as I said. It also goes back, a lot of us people of my age have grown up with the aircraft, so their you know, fathers and mothers have spoken about the aircraft of, you know, that was that thing we bought in the 60s in the Menzies era, uh, you know, in a, in a period of uncertainty in the Cold War, and it probably gave Australia a sense of cutting-edge technology and a great sense of deterrence in that unknown world of that day. It's also very been very visible over the years with, you know, numerous air shows, river fires, the Sydney Olympics, if you cast your mind back to that, the closing ceremony, taking the flame, was the F-111 doing a dump and burn. So, you know, it's certainly been visible and it's got some unique characteristics. Dump and burn is a great visual thing, but it is a uh, you know it is just a quirky design and something we do for air shows. It has no tactical significance, but it certainly is relevant. Uh, sorry, it um, it makes people relate to the aircraft. The thing I've noticed in F one eleven over its years since I uh, came in as a as a young fellow was we have continually upgraded the aircraft, but also the way we operate it. I think it's typical of Australia and most um, you know small outfits that you've got to be better than the sum of individual parts. You've got to keep evolving. You've got to keep doing things better. And I think that's been that Australian military way to make something out of nothing. And even farmers on the land, you know, can get out there and uh, fix things with minimal. So it's in our psyche to get every last bit of capability out of the aircraft and do things with it that people didn't expect you to do with it. An example, when uh, for many years, probably the first 10 years, it was very much a low-level strike bomber. Uh, one or two aircraft out there, ideally at night, using the terrain-following radar system, hitting targets below the radar. We now use it quite a lot for close air support. In the old days, an F-111 close air support, they would go, it's a strike bomber, it doesn't do close air support. That is bombing the enemy in close proximity to the troops. That was um, seen as the realm of uh, other aircraft. We've taken that role and pretty well perfected it using precision bombs, the sensors on the aircraft, and do that quite regularly. And that's the role that lots of air forces are doing in Afghanistan and indeed Iraq before that. We were using what was the strike bombing pod, the laser pod, the infrared pod, in what was then called a non-traditional ISR role, Intelligent Surveillance Reconnaissance. Basically, that pod was to find a target, laser it, and drop a bomb on it. Then we went, hey, this is a great camera in the sky. So we could be overhead, our troops looking at beach landings, air, uh, aircraft insertions, all those sort of things, and helping the troops out on the ground. We started doing that in 1989, before the first Gulf War. In fact, we started it for the USAF, and one of our American exchange officers took it back and went, hey, the Aussies have come up with this thing, it's a bit different, um, in that flexibility. And then they use that to great effect. We still talk about it as non-traditional ISR. I'm not quite sure how long you've got to do it for. If you do it for 21 years, then hopefully it's traditional uh, by now. So all our roles, the aircraft have been up, updated. We had, um, for the first 10 years or so, it was pretty well a dumb bomber, just free fall bombs a la World War II. We upgraded it with the PaveTech pod. We had laser guided bombs put on it. A Harpoon anti-ship missile, which is a you know, 100 kilometre missile, very advanced and still is, um, anti-ship missile that sea skims along and uh, uh, sinks ships where they're supposed to. We've also put on a TV guided uh, weapon, the AGM-142, which is a 3,000 pounds, so quite big, about as long as this room is wide. That has a TV camera in the front and a data link pod in the back. So missile gets released, 
the uh, weapon system operating the aircraft sees what's the picture from the missile as it's flying out and controls that and flies it into the target. So the last thing the operator sees is the target doing that as the bomb, uh, the missile flies through the target. 20 years ago that was just unheard of, we would have had that capability on the aircraft. The electronic warfare suite is also quite amazing. When the aircraft was produced, it was a fully integrated um, suite of defensive capabilities. Probably a bit too advanced, a bit too um, optimistic in terms of making that work, but it was a fully integrated system. It could detect a missile launched at you and run a jammer program against that or dispense chaff and flares against that. We're only now in the realms of perfecting that with uh, Joint Strike Fighter and other aircraft, you know, 40 years later. So... It had a lot of firsts uh, on this aircraft, and we have kept improving that as it goes. As the aircraft's got older, it's become slightly impractical to keep updating the aircraft, especially with when the end was in sight. So rather than update the aircraft, we put some things in it. This is a um, tablet PC that we connect to the aircraft, which gives us, basically connect, connect that to the aircraft, and this gives us a moving map capability a database of imagery, and uh, and also if we had chosen, we could have had a link capability through that. That was uh, not cost beneficial in the end game, but uh, again, great work to our engineers and our innovation, that Australian innovation, and making the most out of everything. The aircraft is, however, very mandrolic, uh, as we call it. You know, it can do a lot of things, but it requires uh, lots of steps in the process. Newer aircraft like the Hornet, certainly the Super Hornet, are you know one or two steps, where the F F111 might take four or five or even ten to get that same job done. Uh, and that's, you know, in a nutshell, those onboard systems of the new aircraft is why we are replacing the aircraft, as well as its maintenance overhead. The guys at the back all love the aircraft. They spend many, many hours uh, maintaining the aircraft for every time we go flying. Newer aircraft are significantly easier to maintain than that. But these guys have got some great skills which will go with them wherever they go on aircraft in the future. The aircraft is, has got incredible range. It's basically uh, about the same range as a 737 or a C-130, uh, about three, three and a half thousand kilometres. So we can get to the US in two stops. And then we go via um, uh, Pago Pago or, and then up to Hawaii. I went to the States once with uh, me and a similar young crew buddy, crossed there and back, completely unassisted, two stops there and brought another aircraft back. And it's things like that that's uh, quite unique in this aircraft. We've operated the aircraft all around the world. We do exercises in New Zealand, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, Singapore. We've been to the Philippines, Alaska, and we've even been to the, uh, to the UK uh, twice with the aircraft uh, via the States and back. Interesting, on that trip, we went across for the Battle of Britain Air Show uh, in the early 90s, and it was uh, obviously just you know uh, thawing of the Cold War. And there was significant talk of doing a goodwill visit to Moscow um, taking the aircraft into Moscow in 1991, which was uh, great. Someone said, uh, how will we get there? And someone said, well, ask the USAF. They've probably got a few routes for an F-111 to get to Moscow. <laughs> the aircraft itself, from a physical point of view, uh, is just, you know, still blows me away today. The, the design that when, you know, built in the era of slide rules uh, with very intelligent, capable people in the 60s, the first turbofan after-burning engine, the fuel flow in this aircraft, which is controlled effectively by a hydraulic mechanical system, we take off... Uh, with about 80,000 pounds an hour and you get to cruising altitude at like airliner type height we're back to four, five or 6,000 pounds an hour at supersonic it's 140,000 pounds an hour so there's a 28 fold difference in what fuel is going through the system being controlled you know, the guys that develop that is just uh, you know, hats off to it and it works you know, amazingly well the engines are incredibly efficient as I said we can go a long way or we can go very fast or a mix of both. Uh, it also carries an enormous amount of weapons, 24 or 500 pounders, whereas most aircraft these days are in the order of uh, four or five. The argument there is you uh, don't need those many bombs if you're more accurate, and the F-111 has got that accuracy uh, now. 
low level, it's incredibly good aircraft to fly. It's, it's unbelievably stable. If you feel turbulence, then uh, it's a very bumpy day out there. You normally don't get that in the F-111. We fly low level in some exercise over land at uh, 800 knots, so mark 1.2, 1.2 times the speed of sound, or four football fields a second. And we'll do that down to 200 feet above the ground. So. Uh, that's quite an amazing capability. We've got 20,000 litres of fuel internal. We very rarely carry uh, external fuel jugs. In fact, I flew from Canada to the UK and landed with the fuel weight of a tornado. <laughs> we still had 10,000 pounds remaining. Uh, that was with jugs, to be fair, 40,000 pounds. The airframe itself, you know, matched the engines. It's actually quite manoeuvrable. Uh, a lot of the fighter guys have always thought, you know, we're a big, slow truck, but, uh, you know, the aircraft actually can turn, and you'll see that in the flying... Uh, uh, and no doubt you've seen that at air shows uh, for many of you as well. The the wing sweep gives us incredible. It uh, it lands slowly. It takes off slowly in a short runway, and then you put the wings back, and you become the high speed dart doing those high speeds. It can also do Mark 2.5 or two and a half times the speed of sound at altitude 50,000 feet. So it just covers the whole range of whatever aircraft is. Probably you know the only sacrifice that's made is that inherent maneuverability as a dogfighting aircraft, which it was never designed to, to do. Uh, we have quite proudly and unashamedly, uh, you know, turned and run uh, to egress uh, out of harm's way, which is, you know, a strength of the aircraft. But you can turn into the fight uh, if you really needed to. The terrain following radar is also been a, just an amazing system, again, designed in the era of slide rules. For those that don't know, it's a, um, there is a radar system, a little radar head about the size of a headlight, very fine uh, radar beam that scans up and down and looks for the hills and sees a hill and automatically connects to the flight control. That will keep us down at 200 feet day or night. That beam is incredibly narrow and it's uh, only and an extreme is to give us 90 feet wingtip clearance from the hills that we are below at night. You can see the rotating beacon bounce off the hills at night when you're going through and those hills are above you so uh, it's fairly eye-watering, but again, it works amazingly well. We have never had an issue with the terrain-following radar system. Uh, so again, you know, I take my hats off to all the people that designed it and uh, the guys that have maintained it. It has been an incredible team effort. I think there's been about 350 air crews, about 170-odd crews have flown the aircraft. It's a two-crew, uh, pilot and navigator. There's been untold thousands of people that have maintained it. I've got my senior engineering officer here, my warrant officer engineering, uh, and they are the last in an amazing long line of high quality people that have kept this aircraft going, thousands of maintainers uh, uh, along the way, and the broader support staff. Ambly has had people in depots pulling this aircraft down to very small bits and reassembling them. We now have incredibly good support from industry. Uh, there are lots of uh, industry partners on base here that are still are working hard keeping the aircraft going and will do the same for Super Hornet and the general public, you know, if it's for the F-111, it generally gets uh, very good support. So that's been, you know, a great thing continues to be. Uh, we have lost and hurt a couple of people, uh, some people over the years, which is, uh, while perhaps not unexpected, it is uh, always tragic. We have had some aircraft crashes and we have lost aircrew and, uh, you know, we have uh, hurt people working on this aircraft. Uh, I think now we are improving, uh, have improved significantly with our general OH&S and what was acceptable or deemed not practical many years ago is now completely unacceptable but we do acknowledge the people that uh, you know worked in a different era uh, and when we look at industrial accidents around the world everyone is striving to uh, keep those those improvements going uh, but we certainly will you know acknowledge those people that have uh, been affected and the families of that. But the, the good thing for me you know as we come to the end is I think this aircraft was bought for deterrence 
Um, we have never had to use his aircraft in operations, and I personally think that's a good thing. I would go out and do it to the hardest of my ability, as would all my crews, when and asked, and right up until the, uh, the last day we would do that. But the fact that we haven't had to, I think, is a great thing. It has uh, you know, kept the peace. It has been a stable one of the three arms, as we've said, with the SAS, the submarines, and the uh, F-111s has been you know, a, a key part of our deterrence capability for the Air Force, uh, and it's been a great platform for everyone. From a capability point of view, we won't miss anything because we have enough um, breadth of operations and choice of how we use our aircraft and uh, what the military is asked to do. So I think it's, you know, you can link, you know, the, the speed and the stuff, but, you know, really we know the aircraft as much as we all love it and we all relate to it. It's, you know, it's a 40-year-old aircraft that um, is not able to provide us the capability we need for the future. So... You know, we won't be in those uh, type of operations where we need those, you know, what the FLM could bring. Or it will become, it requires other assets to support it, which detracts from using those other assets in their primary role. Probably add to that, you know, um, it's, it's one of the last real um, traditional aircraft that has a maintenance overhead where we get to train uh, our maintenance troops in the, in the very basics of good maintenance practices and troubleshooting. Uh, we're going to miss that. Uh, with a whole new fleet coming in, it's kind of, uh, you know, I remember my first car, uh, I could open the bonnet of it and uh, you could probably crawl inside it and still close the bonnet and I could work out what each bit was. I opened the uh, the bonnet of a modern car with all the electronic systems and, you know, you pretty much need somebody trained uh, as a mechanic on that and it's a bit like that with the aircraft. Uh, the troubleshooting maintenance practices and the, uh, the skill set that... Uh, that uh, Huawei, uh, Warren Officer Brown over here and, uh, and uh, Squadron Leader Stan O'Donnell as the Senjo and Huawei of, uh, of Sixth Squadron have been able to train their troops. Those skills are really translating well into Supona and other platforms and we're going to miss that. And uh, I, I would sort of make the point that it's exactly the same for the air crew. The, uh, the skills required to drive the pods and the sensors and operate an F-111 um, it, it takes a fair bit of work to get uh, much out of it and uh, that's been a great training ground for us. I guess if you, if you send your mind, uh, rewind it back to the early 70s, the F-111 was, uh, you know, all the bad news stories, you know, that was late, it was, you know, the flying Sydney Harbour Bridge, all those sort of uh, things. So uh, we look at it now and it's all this great thing, but uh, in any aircraft infancy, maybe it doesn't take a while to build up. Um, I think, basically, you know, the Super Hornet is a magnificent aircraft and as you hear more stories and people operating going, wow, I can't believe the air crew's flying now just go, I can't believe what I can do with this aircraft, you know. Um, you know, we put this on the aircraft and think we're pretty high tech and isn't that great, you know, but we're really, you know, doing the farm machinery thing. Um, the stuff on the Super Hornet and the JSF Beyond will give us capability and that'll be the stories come out. And the new generation of crews, all those kids that sit there playing with uh, iPhones, yeah, they'll be the ones operating it and uh, the old blokes like us will uh, you know, just be struggling to uh, uh, keep up to it. And that, that's recognised actually in recruiting. You know, we the training programs I think will look significantly different in the future for what we need to skill people with. You know, we won't need to teach them about how an ADI works or you know compass errors or things like that. You know, that uh, we spend a bit of time on now. Thanks, Ed. Uh, we're just going to have a quick mission brief by the F one eleven crews that will be uh, operating today. Yeah, ladies and gents, this is just a, uh, an extract. Uh, two crews coming in, guys. Um, a normal sortie brief, you know, takes uh, you know 45 minutes to an hour. Where we cover absolutely everything: what the aim of the mission is, what the targets are, the met and no teams. So we're just going to give you a, a quick extract of that, you know, condensed into five minutes, just so you can sort of see the things we talk about. 
we go flying on a two-hour mission, we pretty well plan that for you know six hours. We'll brief it for an hour. We'll walk out with the aircraft an hour before to the check. So it's about a ten-to-one ratio for flying versus prep. A big part of that is debriefing and learning from every mission. Every time we go flying, we set an operational uh, outcome objective, what we want to do, and then uh, we debrief that. So it's treated like a war mission every time we go flying. Right, uh, good afternoon or good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, today we'll be conducting a formation brief for our Savage Formation. Basically, overview-wise, what we're going to do is a two-aircraft low-level attack mission. We're going to go basically out of Ambly, anti-clockwise, into our Evans Range area. We have two targets today. We have a pairs uh, toss attack onto a simulated barracks, uh, and then we have a in-trail hop-to-dive attack into a simulated bridge. From there, we're going to go to the Evans Head Range area, do a level A down, uh, and then conduct uh, one or two threat reactions before coming back home. Uh, I'll pass over to uh, Lieutenant Conrad Stalling, and he'll uh, give us an overview of the first attack. Uh, good morning. As briefed by Vlad, we have two uh, attacks for today, however, this is the primary one. So a brief overview for this one is our task is to disrupt enemy forward operating base. Our risk will be medium and the CDE within the immediate vicinity is nil. The expected weather out there today is we have a uh, wind 060 at 12, approximately um, clouds scattered four and a half. The target itself to disrupt within according to the commander's intent is we have a enemy barracks associated towards the south of the facility and we also have a uh, petroleum, oil and lubricant storage facility in the in the middle of it. Associated threats, we have a uh, co-located SA-8 man passing AAA in the immediate area. Weaponeering and the uh, weather and the threat is driven us towards a tactic where it's going to be a pair's visual toss left, releasing two simulated GBU-12s each with delayed fusing. How are we going to do this is we have IP to target and we're going to run in, pair spread with dash two slightly in front, visual toss left, egressing towards the south-southwest. Uh, big considerations for today is we have, uh, if the weather's a bit more skosh than what's predicted, we'll uh, dip the uh, toss down to a bit of a lower profile or we'll end up in a one-minute trail. Re-attack options if we are threatened, we flow cold towards the east uh, for a re-attack with a uh, visual mutual support of the other playmate. If for some reason we are dead at some stage because of the CDE and ROE constants, I'm happy for uh, either aircraft to release the weapons ballistically. So in summary, uh, low level mission out of Embley, anti-clockwise, two targets. Uh, first one's a pair's toss left. Uh, second one's going to be a pop dive on the simulated uh, bridge uh, before conducting some uh, range training area activities and then coming back home for our pairs landing. Questions? Cool. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Okay, lots of jargon in that, but that's how we, uh, that's how we brief. Flight Experience 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot seat, flying past London Bridge or the Eiffel Tower, and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's flight experience. From the roar of the engines to amazing visuals, flight experience puts you in control of a 737 flight simulator. It's so real, your senses actually believe you're flying. For more information, go online to flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight Experience, the ultimate flying experience. If you're keen on becoming a tradie, then there's no better place to start than the Air Force. Nowhere else does doing a trade mean you get new challenges every day, get the chance to progress your career and get to travel the world. And of course your qualifications are recognised all over the country. 
We're currently looking for a range of technicians to work on Air Force aircraft. So if working with onboard weapon systems or aircraft electronics sounds good to you, text TRAINEE to 131901 or visit defencejobs.gov.au. Air Force. Accomplished. Pilot Stu here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects. And joining us on the line from a rather chilly Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the official PCDU historian, David Vanderhoof. Hi, David. Hi, Steve. Um, okay, as for chilly, it is is minus eight degrees Celsius here and today. I'm, and I'm sure everybody here in Australia and New Zealand is thinking you can have that all to yourself, my friend. <laughs> Yeah, we've had a cold winter, but luckily it's not like last year where it was snowy. Um, so we're we're blessed with that aspect. Okay, well, David, it's been a while since we've uh, we've had you on the show, and uh, we know you've been busy with uh, with your own uh, excellent military aviation podcast, and it's uh, just as well because we're uh, we're focusing solely on the F one eleven and military aircraft in this episode of PCDU. So uh, let's have a chat about the history, perhaps, of the F one eleven and uh, how it came to be in the first place. Well, the F one eleven has got a um, a sordid history. The success that you know it is not the way it started out. It was originally known as McNamara's Folly after our Secretary of Defense under John F. Kennedy. So if you can imagine 50 years ago, it's hard to believe this week is the we're going to be celebrating the 50th inaugural of John F. Kennedy. His Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, had really no military background. He was strictly a numbers guy. He thought that only one aircraft could be suitable for both naval use and Air Force use. So we wouldn't have these multiple aircraft in multiple services. He wanted one aircraft. The result of that was the TFX project, Tactical Fighter Experimental, which inevitably became the F-111. Much like our troubled F-35, the F-111 has a parallel history, hopefully with the same outcome. Originally, there were two versions, the F-111A, which was the United States Air Force version, and the F-111B, which was the United States Navy version. The F-111A was going to be a tactical bomber, fighter bomber, uh, much along the lines of the F-100. It was radical at the time because it had swinging wings. Um, The wings swung out for low-speed handling and back for high-speed handling. Also, what was radical about it was the terrain-following radar that the F-111 would come to have be very successful at or in early stages um, was a bit of a death trap and had we had F-111s flying in the mountains. If you change the wing and make the wing longer, shorten the nose and put in um, the equivalent of an F-14 Tomcat radar and give it four Phoenix missiles, that was what the F-111B was supposed to be. A completely opposite mission from the fighter bomber of the F-111A, the F-111B was going to be a point interceptor, a fleet dominance fighter. What happened would be an F-111 would take off with its four Phoenix missiles and shoot down anyone attacking the carrier battle group from a minimum of 50 miles away. The Navy hated the F-111. At the time, the um, program was split up between two groups. The F-111A was being built by General Dynamics. The F-111B was being built by Grumman. So after some time, McNamara kept forcing the issue, and eventually the F-111B went away. However, its mission 
its engines and its weapons went on to become part of a, another aircraft, which would be the F-14 Tomcat. I guess it's ironic, David, that um, all the things that the Navy tended to hate about the F-111 and, and its proposed role ended up being a similar role that was fulfilled in the end by the F-14. The, the difference between the Tomcat and the 111B would have been the Tomcat actually could dogfight. The 111B would never be classified as a dogfighter. One of the lessons learned in the process of the F-111 was we started doing close-in dogfighting with Phantoms in the Vietnam conflict. And we were fighting against small, nimble MiG-15s, MiG-17s, and MiG-21s. The F-111 was designed to shoot down aircraft at long range, not mix it up with those small, nimble fighters. So had the F-111B gone into production, it would have not been able to have the capabilities necessary for a close-in dogfight. In other words, Top Gun with F-111s would have been one uh, one boring movie. <laughs> uh, that being said, one of the one of the things that came out of the F-111B directly relates to your F-111Cs, which was the longer wing, which was designed to provide extra lift as well as longer range and endurance, which went into two different versions, the F-111C and the bigger F-111, FB-111, which was the strategic bomber version. So the F-111C became a unique uh, variant uh, that was made specifically for the RAAF. It was sort of a hybrid, yeah. The Charlie was the wings of the F-111B and the and the fuselage and engines and avionics of the F-111A. So you did really get a hybrid aircraft which had its advantages and disadvantages. When the F-111B program ended, it caused several delays, and one of them was the wings for the F-111C, which I'm sure you're aware that the F-111 had a sordid history for a while that they weren't being produced fast enough, and the RAAF had to get McDonnell Douglas Phantoms F-4Es as a temporary loan while the F-111s got their bugs worked out of them. Yeah, it's much the same way, uh, although they they're not loaning them, they're buying these, uh, the new Super Hornets, but it's, it's, it's interesting now that uh, 40 years on, the Super Hornets that are replacing the F-111s are f- sort of fulfilling a similar role, uh, sort of as a stopgap until the F-35s arrive, if they arrive. Well, the, uh, the other irony of the Phantoms was when the time came for the F-111s to come back and they were to return the Phantoms, there were a lot of pilots in the RAAF that were really not happy with giving up the F-4 Phantom. One other variant that was similar to the F-111C actually was Great Britain for a while toyed with the idea of buying F-111s. The reason why they did that was because they canceled the TSR-2 and one of their alternate replacements was F-111. So there was a potential at one point of there being F-111s in Great Britain besides what became the F-111s, E's and F's. Yeah, so the United States Air Force had quite quite an F-111 fleet based in the UK. If memory serves, uh, yeah, the uh, Upper Hayford was EF's 111As and F111Es with the UH tail code. The Lake and Heath group were F111Fs. The F111F was the penultimate version of the F111 and had the paved tack pod and also had the uprated TF30 engines. The TF30 engine, which went on to be in the F111s as well as the early F14s, were woefully underpowered for the aircraft that they were propelling, as well as the F111s had triple plow and double plow 
style intakes, which were a variable intakes to promote high speed, low flight, they also were problematic throughout the thing. All of the engine issues were finally ironed out with the F-111F and F-111E. Uh, so the benefit of that was that eventually the um, RAAF could take advantage of those uprated engines later on. Now, there's a lot of, you're talking about a lot of different variants there. And Australia, of course, had the F-111C and later the G. Australia also had a number of um, F-111Cs that were modified more in a, uh, a reconnaissance role. The, the RAAF had something that the, the USAF never had, which was an RF-111C. They actually had cameras installed into the fuselage belly area of the F-111. We never had a reconnaissance version of the F-111. The reconnaissance that was done primarily through most of the F-111's life was done by the RF-4 Phantom. Um, the major variants in the United States were the F-111A, which saw combat in Vietnam, under Operation Combat Lancer, the F-111B, which never went into production, that was going to be the Navy version, the F-111C, which is the RAAF, the F-111D, E, and F were fighter bombers or strike bombers. The F-111F claimed to fame, it had the PAVTAC navigation and targeting pod that swung out from underneath it. Um, the RAAF eventually picked those up. The biggest claims to fame for the F-111Fs were they were part of the Tripoli raid, Operation El Dorado Canyon, where the F-111s left Lake and Heath and flew all the way down the Atlantic Ocean around the Straits of Gibraltar and then up the Mediterranean using multiple refuelings where we had KC-10s refueling, KC-135s refueling F-111s, struck various campsites and airfields around Tripoli and then flew all the way back because they were not given overflight rights by France and Spain. Today, as we're recording this, it's 7.39 p.m. on January 16th, and believe it or not, today is the 20th anniversary of Operation Desert Storm. The F-111s played a pivotal role at, for long-term targeting and strategic bombing in that conflict also. They were the ones carrying the very large bunker buster bombs that were designed to go through the hardened aircraft shelters. Also, there's a very famous scene where there is an electro-optical bomb where you you watch it destroy a oil rig that had been blown open and was leaking oil into the Persian Gulf. To stop that leak, they used an electro-optical bomb from an F-111 and a paved tack. After the Gulf War in 91, we um, proceeded to draw down um, and eventually they were retired to the boneyard. The other two major variants for the F-111 in, in U USAF service were the EF-111A, which is what the real name of it was the Raven, but what I personally like the name, it's the Sparkvark. Yeah, I've heard you use that terminology before. That's actually one of the interesting things. I guess most uh, the the F-111s in USAF service were known as aardvarks, uh, but here though, yeah, it was uh, more affectionately known as the pig. Well, you don't have aardvarks down there. Well, uh, that must be why it is. <laughs> Um, and officially, it, it officially got the name Aardvark. Up until it retired, the F-111 did not have a name. You know, the Air Force usually gives aircraft names, but the F-111 was the F-111 up until it was retired. And when it was retired, the United States Air Force officially gave it the name Aardvark. So they became officially Varks. But the EF-111 was a hybrid built by, believe it or not, Grumman, who hated the product in the first place. However, taking the technology from the EA-6B Prowler, the Air Force modified the 
for the Prowler radars and electronic jamming equipment to be retrofitted on F-111As. They became EF-111As. The difference between the Navy the Navy EA-6Bs was it required three radio operators. The EF-111A was a simplified system where it was the pilot and the navigator um, electronic operator. So, and, be- and believe it or not, the only kill ever killed by an F-111 occurred in Operation Desert Storm on the first night where where a Iraqi MiG-29, I believe, was flying after the Sparkvark, and the Sparkvark did some evasive maneuvers, and the F- the chasing Iraqi MiG unfortunately imploded into the ground. So there was the, that's the only kill that I'm aware of for an F-111. Uh, th- that brings up an interesting point too, uh, David. You're just talking there about MiGs, and um, of course, uh, these aircraft came out of the you know were designed at the height of the Cold War, and I guess the the big threat there that uh, they're being designed to counter back then was the um, you know the the red menace the soviet threat what what sort of aircraft on the Soviet side would be an equivalent of the F-111 or, or even did they produce an aircraft that would have had a similar role? The Fencer would be, or the Su-22 Fencer was an F-111-esky. It was a two-seat swing-wing fighter-bomber aircraft that went into production and I think still the um, Soviets still fly. That would be the closest comparison to the F-111. They really didn't have that type of aircraft in the inventory the MiG-23 was the swing-wing aircraft originally, um, the Flogger. That was the first Russian aircraft to have swing wings modeled after the F-111. I was thinking, too, of the, the one, I can't think of the designation, but I know they called it the Fox Spat. That was the MiG-25. That was the that was the Super Mach 3 Plus Russian fighter that we first found out when it defected to Japan. It was designed to shoot down XB-7 Valkyries. Um, we never put in the Valkyrie into production, but the Fox Bat was then used to try to shoot down SR-71 ones and was their high speed point interceptor. Okay, so I mean it's it's a really interesting aircraft and, and fascinating and, and I guess from the technologies that were developed through the F111 program over its life, um, you're seeing a lot of those uh, or variants of those technologies and ideas being brought forward to the, the more modern aircraft these days. And uh, a lot of the pilots we spoke to at Ambly are, are still, you know, just just in awe of the aircraft even even though it's such an old aircraft now and, and now pulled out of service sadly. But uh, one of the things I was wondering too is that it was produced by General Dynamics. Whatever became of them? Like all good products, General Dynamics got absorbed by the big two. We only have two aircraft manufacturers anymore, Boeing and Lockheed Martin. General Dynamics also produced the F-16. That's why it's now the Lockheed Martin F-16 Fighting Falcon. Yep, and uh, of course so we know that uh, Boeing uh, had quite a, an active role, uh, particularly at Amberley, doing uh, deep maintenance in its later years on the F-111 fleet here. It, it is kind of ironic that both companies actually Grumman was bought by Boeing so the the Boeing the Grumman aspects of the F111 program are now Boeing I don't know if they you'd, you'd actually call it a Boeing EF111A but I would never call it a Lockheed Martin F111F or C either. So yeah. I, I'm old school. So it's both both of those. Co- I mean, unfortunately, General Dynamics, like all of the companies, we've gotten absorbed into two major organizations here in the States. Steve, we need to talk about one more variant that actually showed up in RAF service. You didn't just fly the F111C. You flew the F111G. What's an F111G? Well, in the 70s, we had a 
bomber gap where we, we weren't producing B-1s yet and B-52s were old and we were afraid they were going to be shot down by Soviet air-to-air, um, air-to-ground missiles. So what was created was a supersonic nuclear bomber but, and with, with a little bit of a fuselage plug and using the longer wing of the F-111C and FB-111A. And that was known as the FB-111. It was created during the Carter administration and it was a long-range nuclear bomber that was going to be a high-speed Mach 2 low-level penetrator. And we had them till 1991. After the Gulf War, we stood down our strategic air command and we had FB-111s. So to supplement the older force of F-111s we had, they were converted and they were taken out of the nuclear role as FB-111s due to treaties and they became F-111Gs. The F-111Gs were used up and the, quite a few of them actually ended up in the Boneyard. The most famous of those for Australian fans was the Boneyard Wrangler, which because the similarities between the F-111Gs and the F-111Cs, the longer wings, the same engines and the same intakes, Australia purchased purchased them for training purposes and you guys flew F-111Gs for it later in life as long as you flew the F-111Cs. The reason why, one of the two reasons why you need to destroy the F-111s and not sell them or, but you're making them scrap metal is, there's two reasons. One, you guys can't have F-111Gs because we promised to destroy them due to our nuclear treaties with the Soviet, with the now Russia. We needed to destroy those because they were part of our bomber totals that we promised to destroy over time. The second reason is the United States absolutely does not want TF-30 parts ending up anywhere in the world for one reason and one reason only. There is still one nation in the world flying F-14 Tomcats using TF-30 engines, and that is Iran. So for our strategic initiatives, that's why you guys have to go to all the trouble of destroying all those beautiful airframes down there. I think they're going to preserve, well, we hear you, depending on who you talk to, they're going to preserve between four and seven. We sort of heard on the day we were there at the media day um, but they they were a little bit uh, they weren't too keen to give us too many details we know that one airframe has been preserved down here in Melbourne at the uh, uh, Royal Australian Air Force Museum at Point Cook well I mean that pretty much sums up the history of F-111s they are I mean as far as destroying airframes you should see what we did to Tomcats when we retired them going on five years now to prevent them from getting into people's hands after we gave them away at museums but well, all in all for an aircraft that was a nightmare to start out with it turned out to be a very successful successful and potent weapon system. You know, David, and it seems like uh, in these more modern times, nothing has changed. We're seeing the same sorts of, uh, you know, challenges, if you like, coming along with the F-35. But, you know, I'm I'm quite confident that over time, uh, if and when that aircraft finally comes into uh, service in whatever configuration uh, that all the interested parties settle on, that uh, it'll be uh, just quite an outstanding aircraft and will will serve all our nations uh, very well for many years to come. We shall see. Well, David, uh, that's been a fantastic history, mate. It's uh, great to get you back on the program again. Now, um, some of our newer listeners to the program uh, may not have heard some of your work previously on earlier episodes. So uh, why not uh, tell all the listeners uh, where we can find you online? You can listen to me every week, whine about military aviation and tankers on the Airplane Geeks podcast, where we have a fantastic Australia desk, but um, don't let that get out. <laughs> um, or 
eventually I will get back on track and I have a blog at whatjustflewby.com and I'm slowly working up back to having a one-man podcast called The Hitchhiker's Guide to Military Aviation where we talk about things just like f 111 and Desert Storm. Awesome, awesome. Well, David, it's been great to catch up with you, mate, and uh, I know you've got to head off now and record with the Airplane Geeks. Speaking of them, so we'll let you go and um, we'll talk to you again very, very soon. Thanks, Steve, and thanks to all the listeners down there on Plane Crazy Down Under. We're standing here under the uh, wing of an F-111C, and uh, we're fortunate enough to be here with uh, Wing Commander Terence Deeth. Terry, mate, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much, mate. Now, uh, Terry, let's have a quick chat about uh, your career here with the RAAF. Okay, um, yeah, I, I first arrived here uh, at Ambly in, uh, in about August of 89 yeah. right, to start my conversion course uh, as a navigator. Um, that, that's the old parlance, the new parlance, I guess, is air combat officer, but um, we've skinned that down to uh, weapons systems officer. Yep. Uh, so WIZO uh, in, uh, in 82, wing of the fast jet aircrew. And um, yeah, so I've been bouncing in and out of the F-111 world for um, the best part of, sort of 21 years. Yep. Uh, that is the lot of military aircrew. Yes. They don't get to always fly, <laughs> uh, so you you're off to ground ground school. Uh, sorry, ground job here, there, and everywhere. Yeah. Um, but largely, as I said, the F111 has been my home for uh, for that 21 years. So your your entire RAF career has been here. Yeah, in and around F111s yeah. and jobs associated with F111s uh, yeah. since since as I said uh, 1989. I was a young man then, and maybe uh, <laughs> a bit older now. But uh, <laughs> yep. So uh, yeah, I've been lucky enough to be involved with this magnificent aeroplane for yeah. for that many years. About how many hours have you got on it? Um, just under 2,000. Okay. Yeah. And uh, which exercises have you seen outside, in addition to within Australia, those outside as well? We've done lots of exercises. We do stuff around the Southeast Asia, so um, you know, spent a bit of time in Malaysia. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, uh, done my fair share of uh, exercises in America. Lucky enough to do a few red flags, oh, cool. uh, maple flag exercise yeah. in, in uh, Canada, um, Cope Thunder in Alaska. Yeah. So seen a few of those, uh, you know, really interesting um, high-end air combat ex- exercises uh, overseas, and of course, um, you know, the activities, all the exercises and things we've done in Australia and and in Southeast Asia, I've had a, a fairly mixed and uh, and uh, career. Okay, excellent. Um, any particular standouts of working with the pig, and you know, any any things you can tell us? Well, I, for me, the um, you know the, the standouts of the F-111 in the, in the Royal Australian Air Force have been. The uh, been with the people really. Um, you know the aircraft is great and a great capability has been for for the nation. But the uh, the calibre of the people that I've been that have uh, that I've flown with, the people who have supported it, uh, who have maintained it, are all magnificent. You know, um, so uh, for me, uh, my memories are not only the aircraft because it's yeah. great, but the people is the is yeah. the big thing for me. Okay. Yeah. Now uh, I understand um, you've had a little bit of time in the US uh, flying with the USAF. Yep, I spent uh, uh, late 94, 95 and 96 with the United States Air Force and Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico. Uh, and I was uh, I flew there with the 524th Fighter Squadron, uh, part of the 27th Fighter Wing and the 8th, 8th Air Force um, for a couple of years on exchange with those guys. Uh, they were flying F-111F Pacer Strike aircraft. And, uh, and yeah, that's been certainly one of the highlights of my career. When I first walked out to the tarmac there in uh, in Cannon Air Force Base, and I could see quite literally serviceable F-111s as far as the eye could see, uh, I, I knew I'd arrived at, uh, at, at a great place, <laughs> and, and it certainly was. 
but um, yeah, so that was that was a terrific time for me and okay. a great time for my family and um, you know a, a great learning experience for me and uh, hopefully I imparted some knowledge uh, <laughs> of our operations to the United States Air Force. So I, I went over there thinking that I'll be able to teach them a thing or two, but when you sort of uh, get swallowed up by you know. As I said, aircraft yeah. as far as I could see, and 130 or 140 crews on the base. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, um, you you start to feel perhaps a little bit smaller than <laughs> you think you are. But, uh, yeah. So uh, we fly here in Australia, we fly the F-111C, and over in the States they were flying the F-111F. So what's the main difference in between those two aircraft? They're very similar, actually. And the F-111F um, that I was flying uh, really had the same pave tax system. Uh, it was uh, GBU-15 uh, and AGM-130 uh, TV-guided weapon uh, capable, so I got qualified on those, those, those weapons. Of course, the Paveway 3 and the Paveway 2 uh, weapon systems we, we used. Um, of course, they didn't have the reconnaissance capability that we have here in Australia, and they didn't have the harpoon capability, or didn't, they had no real requirement for it since they got... You know, that's really, right, yeah. yeah. So uh, we, we sort of didn't play with the harpoons while over there. But, um, but yeah, they're very similar aeroplanes um, to sort of what we've got here, okay. the F-11F. And uh, the engines are all the same in them? The no, they have bigger motors than the F-11F, and, and it used to get up and go a really uh, seriously low-level. Uh, I remember seeing you know, Mark 1.2 uh, low-level uh, over in an um, exercise in Canada, and I spoke to uh, an F-16 pilot that had a look at me on his radar and, uh, and said, I just... I can't do anything with that, you know. <laughs> I, I can't do it. He went away to get somebody who was a bit slower, and you know. So, um, but yeah, no, it was an incredible capability, the F-11F. Mm. And you were transitioning over to the uh, to the Super Hornet. Has that been a you know a big change in, in culture and technology, obviously? And... Yeah, um, culture not so much. Just the, the technology, absolutely. You know, it, it is an incredible capability, the um, the Super Hornet. And I mentioned before, it'll be sad to see the F-11 go, but you know, it, it doesn't. Uh, it no longer has the sorts of capabilities that are going to um, see us into the future. Uh, and, of course, the Super Hornet has, you know, the, the Link 16 and the JDAM weapon systems and uh, two crew cockpit with, um, you know, helmet-mounted sight, uh, both front and back seat, uh, an incredible AESA radar. You know, all these things uh, come into, you know, a great multi-role capability that we don't see in the F-111, of course. Plus also a lot easier to maintain, fewer maintenance hours per flight hour. Absolutely, you know. Um, again, love the F-111 to death, but it was, it's, you know, it's, it's hard yakka to keep these things airborne. Um, and it's resource intensive, not only from people, but, you know, money and spares and, and time uh, to keep the things um, serviceable and airborne and, and able to contribute to the defence of the nation. It takes, it takes a lot of resources. Yeah. And uh, the Super Hornet, you know, not so much. No, yeah. you Nowhere near it, really, because it's, um, it's a newer... Um, the systems have been designed for maintenance. You know, it's you know, it's more sort of pull out a piece and, re- and, and replace it than actually get in there and, and fix wires that you see in the F-111. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, less soldering irons. Exactly. <laughs> now, you guys have been training across in the US initially uh, for the conversion. Uh, the US, of course, used the Hornet as a naval aircraft. So were you training with the US Navy? Or? No. In fact, I did the first conversion course back here. Uh, and, um, yes, we, we are, have bought... Uh, um, quite a few um, conversion courses over in America, so we've been sending our uh, F-111 aircrew over to uh, train with the Super Hornets with the United States Navy. Um, but my role uh, next year will be to stand up Six Squadron, and Six Squadron is largely the uh, training capability for the Super Hornet and 82 wing. Uh, and um, what I wanted to see from my, own, from my own perspective is how the conversion course was going to run. So the only way to do it is to actually do it yourself. You actually had to see it yourself. So I went through the conversion course from, from start to finish yep. uh, and saw um, the sorts of issues and problems that might come about. 
and uh, and that is allowing me to you know have a think about how I'm going to transition to your training um, training squadron, six squadron, yeah. training squadron, uh, and the capability next year. And we've seen recently that the uh, the recent spec coming off the production line there in St Louis is the FA18F Plus, which we understand is the Growler spec. So. Will there be any specific training for that role at this stage, or is that that's only an option if they require? Yeah, that, it's a, it's um, there's a government option that um, you know they haven't pulled the trigger on, and uh, you know so we'll be there. We're not going to really notice the difference. Um, there's a couple of things externally, but um, you know, and a couple of hundred pounds of extra wiring that go into the aircraft. If the government pulls the trigger on it, then you know we'll start having a look at what we need to do from a training perspective for, for the ground. Yeah, so basically the the F the F plus is fully plumbed. But just not not uh, doesn't have all the bits hanging off, and at that point you'd probably send some folks over to the Navy and US Navy to come up to speed on the Growler. Absolutely, you know there there would need to be um, quite a bit of interplay with the US Navy and their Growler capability yeah. before we sort of came anywhere near a capability for for our own aircraft. Now uh, we were talking with uh, Matt Hall recently about uh, the the difference in culture and the friendly rivalry that goes on between F one eleven crews and uh, FA-18 Hornet crews. Now, you guys, of course, are going across the FA-18. He actually rather callously described these as B-111s. What would you think about that? <laughs> uh, look, I, to the absolute truth, I, I don't actually consider the um, the F-111 to be a fighter. And, and, you know, any of the guys that fly these aircraft um, don't consider them to be fighters. Uh, in the United States Air Force, though, yeah. they consider them to be fighters. But, of course, they have real bombers there, yes. B-52s Jeez. and B-1s. Yeah. And they, you know, <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know, an F-111 pilot over there is quite happily just calls himself a fighter pilot. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't see that here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but, you know, we're, it's a strike aircraft, yeah. and that, that's the way we're strike and reconnaissance, and, uh, and we're proud of that. You know, that's, that's its uh, heritage. That's what it does very well yeah. um, and has done very well in the past and served Australia particularly well for in the past. But um, but no, it, it, you know it can stay F one eleven. That's fine. Uh, and uh, Matt Hall, you know he, he's a he's a workmate of mine. He can say what he likes. Uh, I don't care too much about what those guys say. <laughs> he's not in anymore well, anyhow. <laughs> well, interestingly, now that you've got uh, you're going to the Super Hornets, is there much competition from the legacy uh, Hornet guys to come over and work here? Good point. Now, in fact, uh, we, we've leveraged off. You know. Um, all jokes aside and all robbery aside, we've leveraged off um, the, the classic Hornet capability uh, here at, in 82 Wing for um, standing up the, the capability for Super Hornet. And, uh, and that's been important for us. That's been an important point. We've actually got ex-classic Hornet pilots here now who are um, who are playing a big part in standing up the capability for the F-111. We couldn't have done it in the speed that we've done it and with, I think, the capability that we've, we're getting with the aircraft without those guys uh, being involved and um, you know there's some, some particularly great guys that they've, they've brought across for us we've been really uh, and they've integrated well with the culture of 82 wing which is subtly different as we've already mentioned they've integrated well they're a great bunch of guys and uh, you know but as far as I'm concerned you know they are 82 wing blokes yep. you know and uh, and you know they are part of our super Hornet capability and, and they're really enjoying it too they, they uh, from a, the aircraft itself the super Hornet, you know um, larger I think they They'd rather fly that aircraft than the Super Hornet than the Classic Hornet. Oh, it is interesting to see the Super next to the Classic. It looks like somebody shrunk the Classic. It's yeah, about a third right. bigger again. They look a bit older too, don't they? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's been a privilege to meet you, and uh, thanks for uh, letting us stand here under this magnificent aircraft. It would be a shame to see it go, but uh, we really look forward to seeing the Super Hornet uh, and seeing you guys perform and uh, you know defending the nation. It's really great. It's a great pleasure, guys. Thanks. G'day, I'm Michael. Hi, I'm Rosalind. And we're from downwind.com.au, the website for aviation enthusiasts. 
Come and join a community of passionate aviators who love to share about their experiences and the joy of being in the air. On Downwind, you can participate in forum discussions, view great photos and videos and keep up to date with a weekly newsletter. So come and join the community at downwind.com.au. Hi there, I'm James Williams, inviting you to listen to Lifestyle Jazz. Lifestyle Jazz is a new contemporary, modern and smooth jazz show on the Lifestyle Pod Network. It's hosted by me, James Williams, and each show you can enjoy a half hour of some of the best jazz around. So let me invite you now to visit us on our website where you can subscribe to the podcast, look at who we're playing and listen to a few shows. I look forward to seeing you soon at lifestylejazz.com advertise your business on the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast? Scripts and Voices has teamed up with the boys at Plain Crazy Down Under to bring you an exclusive offer. Scripts and Voices can make your ad to feature on this podcast at a specially reduced cost. That includes writing your ad, voiceover, backing music and production. To get your ad made in time for the next podcast, check out scriptsandvoices.com. Follow the link and send us an email. For advertising rates and packages, please see the Plain Crazy Down Under website. And welcome back, folks. Now, uh, really interesting there to hear from uh, Terry Deeth at the end there talking about flying. But, uh, Grant, flying is only one part of any uh, any sort of uh, flight operation. And of course, we've got to have pilots and all the rest, but there's uh, training and maintenance that goes with that. So uh, in this portion of the program, we're going to be talking to, first off, the uh, the gentleman that uh, run and operate the uh, very impressive-looking flight simulator there at Ambly. Yeah, it's a pretty impressive piece of equipment. And uh, much and all as it was cool to check out the control panel, I think I enjoyed that more than the replica cockpit and the display area. I did sort of get distracted by uh, walking into the computer room where they had all the uh, racks of equipment that power the thing. It was very hard to drag Grant away from those computers too, but in these interviews with the uh, simulator people, we're going to talk to Steve Clark. Now, Steve works for the civilian operators that uh, run the simulator, but he's also an Air Force reservist and uh, an F-111 pilot with thousands and thousands of hours. So yeah, we think he's perhaps the, the highest, sorry, the highest accumulated hours of anyone in F-111s. If he's not the highest, he's within the top two or three. And just as a bit world. of a side note, You'll hear uh, Steve talking about the possibility of him being able to strap on the jet one more time for the final fly pass. Now, we don't know whether he actually got the chance to do that. So uh, we'd certainly appreciate, uh, if, if not Steve himself, uh, any of the listeners who were there who might be in the know to let us know. That would be uh, quite interesting to know. Uh, also, uh, Grant's going to be talking to Brett Denton. He's one of the uh, the people that keep the, the uh, simulators running. And then uh, after that, we're going to have a section where we talk to four of the, uh, the guys out on the flight line that do all the maintenance. We're going to talk to uh, Flight Lieutenant Adam Firth, uh, Sergeant Chris Walker. Uh, we're also going to talk to uh, Corporals James Morton and David Bash. And uh, David Bash, I really uh, particularly enjoyed talking to David. Uh, he's actually an American, so uh, there's there's quite an interesting story that goes with that, and uh, that'll be an, an interview later on in this block. We're here in the uh, F-111 simulator building, and uh, we're fortunate enough to chat with Steve Clark. And Steve is an F-111 pilot with uh, many thousands of hours and also currently still flying as part of the reserve. Welcome to the show, Steve. Yeah, thanks very much. Nice to be here. Now, um, you're, you're looking after the simulator here, so can can you tell us a bit about the F-111 simulator, please? Yeah, so uh, the simulator we've got here has been here since 1997. Uh, it started life as an F-model simulator in Lakenheath in the UK with the USAF. It was bought by the Commonwealth and they shipped it over here. And a, a local company, yeah, Wormall then, okay, now yes. Talus, yes. turned that into a, a C-model, Australian C-model F-111 sim, and we've been running training here since 1997. Okay, so, so Talus bought Wormold. 
Wormwood, yeah. So Wormwood yeah. moved through Thompson CSF yes. and eventually became Talus. Okay. So we're a Talus Australia underneath the uh, the larger umbrella. How, so how long have you been associated with the sim? I've been I've been uh, working with now Talus since it arrived here in '97. Okay. Prior to that, I was with the Air Force, and yep. I stepped out to become a sim instructor. Okay. So let's talk very quickly about your career with the Air Force. Um, what made you interested in flying? Uh, seven-year-old child in the UK and a lightning came over the top oh, at yeah. uh, Raf Henlow yeah. and that was it. I was sold. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not one of those kids who ever wanted to be a fireman or a policeman. I just wanted to fly aeroplanes. Yeah. Oh, with the, with the BAC lightning going overhead yeah. at high speed, that's that would definitely get your attention. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, and so did you start with the RAF? Yes, yeah, so I started out with the Australian Air Force. Okay. Uh, straight out of school, too young to join the Air Force, so I bummed around for a year, uh, signed up as soon as I could. Today yeah. I turned 18 and uh, I've been flying ever since. Uh, did you go straight into the F-111 or what did you start with? No, I was a uh, direct entry, so I came into uh, the Canberra first. Okay. Back in, flew that for a couple of years as a navigator. Flew the F-111 as a navigator for about two and a half years. Did pilot's course, a brief penance flying caribous, and then I've pretty much been on and off uh, F-111s ever since. Okay, so you, some people would say you got the light and transitioned to the left seat. Others might say you've uh, destroyed you know, destroyed all credibility and you're now a stick shaker. Yeah, but as, a, as an instructor, I spend about half my time on either seat anyway, so uh, it, it's much of much. <laughs> Fence sitter. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so uh, now how many thousand hours do you have in the F-111? Total of about 3,500, so I, I racked up about 500 as a pure navigator, and I put on about 3,000 as a pilot ever since, and I'm proud to say I put 1,000 hours in the aeroplane since I left the Air Force. <laughs> so all, all under the auspices of the reserve, so all, all in uniform, but yeah. Yeah, I always tell people I put 1,000 hours on outside of the Air Force. That's that's pretty how impressive. Does it, how does that work with the reserve, being a reservist and a pilot? It's a good arrangement we've got. In fact, the, the company's quite happy for me to to fly because that keeps my uh, flying currency and skills up which means when I'm training I can offer a better service back to the Air Force so when they're short of pilots or on a fairly regular basis they whistle me up I just pull on a flying suit sign on with 23 Squadron which is the local reserve outfit and I, uh, I walk down there and I hear Squadron leader Steve Clark come down to fly the airplane finish flying pull it off throw these uh, glad rags back on and I'm back in here as Clarky yeah uh, pointing my finger at them and yelling. So I know that the, obviously the program is finishing up, but what does that leave for you? Are you going to do simulation with some other form of the Air Force? Or uh, what? I, I am. I'm, at the moment I'm talking with a, a mob called Millskill who okay, uh, yeah. run the F-18F yes. simulator, yep. or, or they provide the aircrew instruction down there. So yes. uh, I'm, I'm working hard to get myself a Guernsey down there. It would, the role would be as a mission specialist because I'm not a Hornet pilot. I can't be a front seat IP instructor. Uh, but there are slots down there for mission specialists who essentially run the simulator and instruct the backseaters. So does that unfortunately mean your reservist flying days are drawing to a close? My, my flying days, I'll be hanging up my boots on the 3rd of December when I land from that last sortie if I'm fortunate enough to get up there, and that's yeah. the plan, and uh, that's the last time Clarkie takes to the air, I reckon. Yeah, well, that's amazing. Yeah. So the, uh, the question I've got um, regarding the simulator tech that we've got here, yep. now it's a fixed-based simulator? Yep, so a fixed, fixed platform, and, and fast jet simulation throughout the world is pretty much going to that, with yep. the exception of some uh, leading-edge stuff the Yanks are playing with in their... Uh, GSF and all that. Yeah, with some basically um, centrifuge-based oh, right. training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but uh, fast jet training, by and large, has gone to full full yeah. wraparound video and fixed platform. Yeah. So yeah, you get everything except the G forces. Correct. Yeah. 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 So we've got uh, we, we've got what was a probably original technology. So there's a 150 degree little IMAX theatre type setup. Yeah. Uh, the more modern ones, as you know, go to a full dome. Yes. Yeah, so we're we're sort of older older okay. technology. So what kind of uh, what purposes do you use the sim for with the crews here? 
Oh, look, it's been used uh, throughout its time for everything from ab initio training. It's now it's not a flight sim, it's a mission sim. Yeah. So everything when I talk ab initio training, you know, people who are aware of simulation know that you've then got to go and replicate all of those sequences in an aeroplane. Yeah. But we'll do them first in the sim, right through to uh, advanced support for the fighter combat instructor course. Okay. So we, we run the full gamut, and it, it's a very very capable mission simulator. Okay. So so way more than just um, de- dealing with emergencies and things like that. Oh, and absolutely. In fact, the vast majority of what I consider to be our, our hardcore work, apart from conversion training is in uh, tactical training for the crews, getting them ready to go to places like Red Flag oh, uh, out okay. of Vegas before they go to a pitch black exercise. Yep. They'll fly those scenarios in the sim. They'll be taxiing around Nellis Air Force Base. They'll yep. fly into the Nellis Rangers. They'll hear American accents and they'll be targeted by all sorts of nasty things. Cool. That's, yeah, so that by the time they get down there, it's, it's second nature. It's not, they're not over, overloaded by all the new stuff. Yeah, you only get uh, 10 sorties in a red flag, for instance. Yeah. In a red flag, too, you get 10 sorties. So if we can take all of the angst of the domestic stuff yeah. out of them, then they don't have to waste those first two or three sorties figuring out what a Nellis 1-2 arrival east is. Yeah. They've done all that sort of stuff. They can focus on the tactical and get much more value out of it. Well, that's excellent. We should probably wrap it up there. We want to get out and have a look at the sim ourselves before they shut it down. So uh, thanks for spending some time with us, and we hope we can talk to you again. Absolutely. Cool. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Great guys. to meet you. Okay, standing here with Brett Denton, and uh, we're at the uh, F-111 simulator, and Brett has just introduced me to a room full of uh, SGI Onyx 3800 computers, and I have now recovered my geek cred a little, and uh, Brett, can you tell us about the uh, systems that run the F-111 simulator? Basically, we've got a 3800, it's got um, 96 CPUs, about 80 gig of RAM, 6 terabytes of hard disk space, and 12 graphic pipes. Okay, and so all that sits in the air-conditioned room and does a lot of chunking and feeds into a replica of a cockpit with a display, yeah? Yep, through a I.O. system, so all the rest of the blue cabinets that you see in there are basically the interface between the computer and the cockpit. And then there's a master control panel where the sim instructors can set up all sorts of fun. Yeah, that's the I.O.S. So from there they control basically the dynamics of the simulation, so the weather, um, where they are in the world, and then that feeds into the computer and then... It takes all the inputs from the cockpit and then feeds it all back so they think they're flying at that point in the space. So how long have you been involved with the simulator here? Uh, since about 88. Wow. So, so I was originally in the RAF and then basically got out and went to Wormel yep. uh, to build this one okay. and then installed this one here and now I'll be pulling this one out. <laughs> okay, so what's it take to keep the simulator running? This one's not too bad, but it takes us about of an hour of a morning to actually start it up and make sure it's all working. About the same in the afternoon, we probably have two hours a week of scheduled maintenance to keep okay. everything um, in the right specifications. And then when we were doing development, we had basically four engineers on site modifying the software, and we'd yep. basically change that twice a year. And uh, so you run this pretty much 24-7 or just during daylight hours? Uh, 6.30 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. So I take it there's more than one of you who's uh, helping out here when t- on the, t- the tech side? Yeah, we had a staffing of about seven, so a manager and six techs okay. running two shifts. Cool, and you're working as a manager? Yeah, I look after the engineering side of the sim, so I had four engineers working for me. Cool. Okay, so uh, yeah, we've had a chat with Steve Clark about uh, running the, the sim from the um, instructor's side of things and the pilot side. So you've given us a pretty good indication of how it is to uh, keep these beautiful purple machines running. What's the plans when it's being shut down? Is it going somewhere in Australia or is it, part, is it like a museum piece? 
the um, crew module and one of the blue cabinets will go to the heritage centre, I believe. Okay. So just the backlighting will work in the cockpit and the rest the government will dispose of some way. As they do. Yeah. Okay. And what about for yourself and your team? What's, you're, you're with Talus at the moment, uh, so what next? Uh, I become unemployed in the early part of next year. So the oh, no. rest of the other guys, we've moved them around to different parts of the company. Yep. But um, the ones left here keeping it running at the moment, we'll be looking for work come next year. Okay. Have you got any ideas what you want to do, like take a break, or um, have you got some, some concepts lined up? No, I'm still looking at the moment. Okay. Oh, sorry to hear that. Uh, I I was wondering if maybe they might have been putting you onto some of the other sims or things like that. No, our company seems to be changing its focus these days. Okay. um, Anything else you'd like to say about the F-111 sim while we're here? It was Australia-made and probably the one and only. Oh, that's right. It was the F-111, the USAF from the UK of an F-111F, but then we modified it to suit Australia, yeah? Yeah, so they picked up a scrap F-111F model. So that's where the blue are the cabinets, but basically everything else got gutted out of it and okay. it was redone by Wormald in yep. DY. Okay. And so we have all the rights to all the software and everything, yep. so we've been able to change it okay. all the way as the aircraft changed over the last 14 years. Oh, that's a, it's going to be a shame to see her go then. Yep. Like the pig, it's, you know, time it moved. Oh, yes. Everything grows and dies. Well, thanks very much for your time, Brett, and uh, congratulations for keeping her running so long and uh, good luck with the future. All right, thank you. Thanks. Okay, so once again, we're standing here right next to an F-111C, and this time we have a couple of gentlemen from Engineering and Maintenance, a couple of the gentlemen who help keep the F-111 in the air. So you, sir, uh, Adam? Yeah, my name's Flight Lieutenant Adam Firth from Six Squadron. Okay, and sir? Sergeant Chris Walker, um, yeah, avionics technician. Cool. Okay, and uh, mate, we'll start with you, Adam. How long have you been associated with the pig? Uh, well, I started off as a tradesman, um, when I first joined up and I did about four or five years on F-111 as a uh, avionics fitter and then I commissioned and I've uh, been lucky enough to come back to Sixth Squadron as a uh, as the maintenance standards officer. Okay. So yeah, all up probably uh, seven years. Cool. And yourself? Yeah, I've, uh, I was first posted into Sixth Squadron in January 1992, so I've been here for just uh, almost 19 years now. Yep. Um, this is my fourth posting to Sixth Squadron and I've been to other places on base in the depot and yep. uh, and also in the training environment. I spent okay. five years as an instructor. Cool. Hmm. Now, the F-111 is uh, like, you know, 60s, 70s technology. It's renowned for taking a lot of hours to keep it in the for every flight hour. How many hours does it take per flight hour to keep these yeah. operating? Oh, I'm not sh- really sure on the breakdown, but yeah, it's certainly getting maintenance intensive and that's one of the main reasons, I guess, it's been replaced. But... Uh, yeah, here at Amberley, they've got a really good um, uh, core engineering uh, group. Our assistance up at uh, with Boeing Aerospace yep. the, the, and uh, Raytheon, they provide outstanding levels of service and that to uh, make any engineering changes or uh, fix any defects that we identify at the squadron. Yep. Um, they're really proactive and, uh, yeah, they've been a, a key um, stakeholder to keep us flying right through to the end. Is that one of the changes that you've seen uh, in, in the way the Air Force works? There's a lot more outsourcing these days than it would have been, say, when you came in. You would have done a lot more of this work in-house, I guess, uh, yep. when you came in. Yeah, in, so in the mid to late 90s, uh, a lot of the, the deeper level maintenance that we used to do in the depot down the other end of the, the base there was, was outsourced to Boeing, um, Raytheon... Yeah. <laughs> 
um, I, I guess not a lot changed uh, in, in the, the actual product that's coming out of those, those places. Um, a lot of the people who were formerly in the Air Force doing that job just transferred straight over to the contractors. Um, so um, there, there was a little bit of uh, teething problems at first, um, logistics-wise, uh, and the time it took to actually get those products, but the product itself was you know, the same standard that, that we had all those years. Um, and yeah, these days, it um, yeah, it's pretty much uh, as it used to run. Um, the only thing that we we tend to find is the uh, the guys that that used to uh, be down there and get all the skills that you would tend to accumulate in doing deeper level maintenance um, aren't getting those skills at, at, at the flight line level. So talk about the, um, now you, you've had crews coming through obviously still training to keep these aircraft operational right up until day dot. Um, have they, you know, what stage is that training at? Did it cease some time ago now and you've just sort of been going as you've been going with the crews you had or have most people been concentrating on transitioning through to the new aircraft? Yeah, we've just finished our, uh, just graduated our last fitter, so he's just come out of uh, Wagga basic training and then arrived at the squadron with, with a, a fairly good level of um, basic hand stills and basic uh, either um, aircraft or avionics knowledge, so uh, we just uh, take them out of the squadron and put them through a uh, two-year fitter program, and uh, so we just graduated our last fitter last week, so... So we don't have a, any more of a training burden as such at, the, at uh, Six Squadron on F-111s. So those guys now are uh, quali- fully qualified technicians. They're able to go onto new weapon systems and uh, uh, go from there. Transition to the yeah, Rhino, yeah. That's right. As for the aircrew yeah. side of things, I think the last uh, aircrew conversion to F-111s went through in at the end towards the end of uh, 2008. Okay. Um, yeah, and then they became qualified uh, after that. And yeah. they've just been yeah. flying with the crews that we had. Yeah, and when they train you guys up, there'd obviously be, like you say, a basic course at, at Wagga, you were saying. Um, how many of those skills are transferable to other aircraft generally within the fleet? I mean, how much of there's obviously specialities, I guess, but how much of that is specific to the F-111? And, you know, would, would the guys be looking at all going on to Hornets or would they be looking at going on to C-130s? Or Basically, all technicians in the Air Force um, receive the same training. Um, there's... There's, only, there's three courses now in Wagga for technicians, um, avionics technicians, um, aircraft technicians, we call them the black-handers, uh, and armament technicians, so the gunnies, basically. Um, <clears throat> so basically they, they do uh, between 14 and 16 months in Wagga, uh, and they, they receive core skills and, and core knowledge that can be applied to any aircraft any, any platform and then they go out and they do a further two years um, so it's, it's like an apprenticeship they do a further two years on the particular aircraft type that they that they are posted to and they learn platform specific stuff so there's type specific courses um, and, and knowledge and skills and then any technician uh, is <laughs> We're not going to add that out either. <laughs> so any technician uh, in the Air Force can go from one platform to another and they'll just have to do the, the type-specific courses and then they can work on that, that other aircraft. So, so get a common grounding, so to yep. speak. Mm. Yep. 
find you have a lot of, you know, like we have a lot of younger listeners that listen to our program and a lot of them would consider the Air Force. Do you find there's a reasonable enough uptake of young people wanting to come in and do this sort of work? Is, uh, you know, you sort of here in the, the civil sector that sometimes, you know, there's a bit of a shortage of, of skilled people. Uh, do you find that's happening in the Air Force or you find you're pretty, you know, you've got a reasonable amount of people? Yeah, I think our, our recruiting numbers are, are good and, uh, I mean, we're certainly getting an influx of um, young technicians through. Um, I've been in for... A, uh, what tw- 20 odd years now and uh, it hasn't changed greatly the the age of the the person joining up now has has uh, slightly increased you're getting at someone that's older and more mature um, at, right at the start of his training which which is uh, good they probably are quicker to quicker to develop and that in their in their schools with the, uh, having a few more years and experience in the in the workforce so that's good but, um, no I, I don't think we're having any trouble certainly uh, um, Keeping and retaining uh, everyone now, where we now remunerated quite well, um, and we've got flexible work arrangements and packages and things like that. So that's all adding to uh, keep retention uh, quite high. Plus the new toys of the Plus rhinos of the yeah, JSF. I mean, it's never been a van- more fantastic time to uh, you know be in yeah. the air force. We've got uh, you know, four or five brand new weapon systems yeah. coming on, unmanned um, aerial vehicles and things like that. So uh, the, the scope of of your duties in the Air Force is, is changing rapidly. So, yeah. yeah. Lots, lots to excite the yeah, uh, that's right. people and keep them happy. <laughs> so, um, okay, here's, here's a question now. We've, we're focusing on the pig today. So um, what happens, let's let's talk about an F-111 comes back from a mission and it, it lands and everyone thinks, well, the pilots, you know, they turn it off, jump out, well, off they go. And no one really thinks of the fact that there's a whole lot of guys waiting on the ground with more than just a few pins. So what exactly happens when, like, an F-111 comes back from a mission? Can you walk us through that? Um, basically, there, there's three different areas to the, to the F-111. So um, during an afterflight, you'll have um, three people, at least three people, to, uh, to afterflight it, um, one in each area. Facebooking and tweeting so everyone who's following us from around the world knows what's going on. So I'll be tweeting that one as uh, a couple of F 111s showing off. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, um, yeah, one guy does uh, does the engine, so he'll um, inspect the engines, check the oils, top them up. Is this while it's, oh, so this is after they've shut down? Because is there stuff that they do while it's still running? Uh, there are scheduled things that happen uh, every hundred hours where they have to do it while it's running, but usually it's after they've shut down. Okay. Yep. Uh, and then another guy will do the, basically the back half of the airframe, yeah. including the wings, the wheel well, etc. Uh, and then there's a, an avionics guy that does the, the front half, and switch check the cockpit, um, clean the windscreens, get all the bugs off them, yeah. Um, yeah, check the tyres and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and how long do you have to wait before you can, re- you know, because you've got a pretty bloody hot engine going on here and it's been pushed through the air pretty quickly, all that kind of stuff. Do you have to, like, stand back and wait for half an hour or so for everything to cool before you can get in there? Well, I'm avionics myself, so I don't have to get in there. I just send them in. No, basically, <laughs> they, get <Boys>. in, <laughs> they get in straight away, pretty much. Uh, if you're deployed to Darwin or Tyndall or, um, or Cairns or somewhere, it, it can get pretty hot so yeah. you know they're just in there in shorts and t-shirts and their boots yep. and uh, they come out sweaty oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can so, so how like how long would if you if an f-111 was required to do as many missions as it could in a certain amount of time uh 
I'm mean, you know, now that we're standing them down, I guess you can talk a little more about this. How, how long would it take from bringing one in to having it ready to go back out again? You can pretty much uh, turn them straight away. It's called a, th- a through-flight refuel. Mm. So really, it's just a you know kick the tires and, and a quick inspection and uh, uh, throw throw whatever required fuel is yep. needed and and off it goes. So it's okay. a pretty pretty fast process. Yeah. Okay. Basically, the, the turnaround servicing will will take shorter than the amount of time it takes to refuel it. So okay. Yeah, that's excellent. Cool. So for an aircraft that is maintenance intensive, it's st- still doing pretty well on the line. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Cool. We often see, um, I notice we're looking at, uh, the, you know, we see a lot of uh, military aircraft that, you know, you've got the pilot's name and the weapons systems officer there, but I also notice that uh, it's got the, you know, I guess it's the crew chief's name, is it, painted on the side? So d- does is there a, a crew allocated to each aircraft specifically? Is that the way it works? Go here? around, hang on. <laughs> He's going around. Generally, we don't normally operate like the the US Air Force and have a, a dedicated uh, launch and recovery crew for each each okay. airframe. But uh, what we do, we have a like a, for the um, um, corporals and below in the unit, we have a, a recognition scheme just called Airman of the Quarter, okay. and uh, so that's nominated through our Warrant Officer Engineering, and uh, we deliberate on on uh, an Airman of the Quarter, and he gets the honour of having his uh, name on on the flipper doors, which is uh, you know a great a great honour, and uh, cool. his name on a trophy and all that. Yeah. So, and uh, he also gets a uh, a park right out the front of the squadron so he can drive his car up and uh, <laughs> he's only Rockstar got a few parking. steps yeah that's yeah. right only a few steps to walk cool. to work so. and how long does that last for uh, that's each so each quarter we have a new, okay. a new, oh, okay. a new yeah. one elected and yeah so enjoy it while it lasts, boy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> cool. We've, we've sort of looked at a lot of uh, a lot of you guys today, particularly the maintenance guys, and they all seem to have a sort of a bit of a sense of sadness that the, the F-111 is going, but, uh, but at the same time, I guess, there's a bit of an air of excitement that there's a new era beginning. Mm. Would that be your assessment of things? Personally, uh, I'm going to be part of the disposal team, so I'm going to be preparing the, f- the four to seven aircraft that are going to be put on display, okay. as well as... Uh, tearing some of these things apart so after 19 years on them that should be good therapy <laughs> taking, take that taking an axe to uh, to one of the aircraft they're going to be cut up and, and shredded you know um, yeah, i've done that to computers so i know what you mean yeah. <laughs> and kitchens as well yes. but anyway um, but no generally uh, there's there's a lot of excitement um i first saw the super hornet in 2003 uh, down at avalon air yep. show and oh, it yeah. impressed me no oh, end so the display that it does its capabilities are very very impressive so um yeah i'm sure the guys who are going over to the uh, to the super hornets are very excited and uh after the disposal team who knows what i'll be doing so hopefully yeah working on something as exciting as that do you know where you're going Adam? yeah yeah i'm i'm, I'm off to a an engineering organization just down the road still here at Ambly called uh, helspo heavy lift um uh, support project office office and uh that's going to uh be responsible for the engineering and support for the new um mrtt or multi-role tanker transport which is basically just a um an airbus a330 converted for tanking purposes as well as uh as well as uh, going to be using a, a troop transport role as well so yeah that's quite exciting but i suppose with most um squadrons that when you leave it's an exciting time at the squadron and it's 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 the aircraft but it's also mainly i think you know that the personnel what you work with so that's that's what you'll really miss the camaraderie and uh, friendships yeah. you make at the squadron is, is really good it's an exciting time of your career really being at a, at a um, front, front line squadron so. it's been a, num- a number of the people we've spoken to have said you know like the aircraft come and go but it's the people exactly so yeah. 
And you're going to be disposing of the aircraft or on the disposal team, but uh, what lies for you after that? Do you, you've been told yet? <clears throat> no, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, that's a two-year um, tenure on the disposal team. So after that two years, um, well, somewhere in that two years, they'll make a decision as to where I'm going to be going. I'll be uh, promoted, so I'll no longer be actually swinging tools <laughs> behind a desk. Um, oh, signing, it gets boring now. Signing leave apps and that sort of thing. So. <laughs> I'm not sure where I'm going to be. Well, gentlemen, we thank you for your time well, here. It's right. uh, been interrupted a few times by a few <laughs> aircraft flying over. We really appreciate you. But it's a beautiful Spend noise. Great yeah. listeners. Yep. Thank Thanks, you guys. Well, well, well. Thanks very much. Okay, so once again, standing there in F-111, surprise, surprise, they make a great windbreak. And, uh, mate, if you could uh, give us your details and tell us what you do here. Yeah, uh, James Morton, uh, born and raised in uh, WA, uh, moved over here to sunny old Queensland after my initial trade training. Uh, that was back in 2003, I've been here since then, so done just over seven years on the F1s. Uh, it's been good. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, now you're a techo, yeah? Yeah, aircraft technician. Okay, so what exactly does an aircraft technician or techo do? Uh, aircraft technician pretty much looks after the entire airframe and engines of the system, of the aircraft, so anything you see we touch and keep yeah. it going. Now when we were speaking to the other gentleman before, they, were t- they ran us through what happens when an, air- an F-111 lands about the three guys who come in and look after, like you've got the avionics, you've got the back half, the front half, all that kind of stuff. So where do you fit in on that? Yeah, I fit in with the, the other two areas, so areas two and three. Uh, area two is a, a primary focus around the, the airframe side of the aircraft. Uh, looking at the, the side of the aircraft in front of the intake along the sides, looking at the entire wing surfaces and inside the land, inside the main landing gear and on top of the aircraft itself. And the Area 3 will be a predominant engine system. Uh, so we'll open up the engine bays, check out uh, oils on the aircraft, make sure there's nothing sitting in the uh, engine, engine bay that shouldn't be in there. Uh, and then from there, we'll uh, enter the exhausts and the uh, intakes and inspect the turbine and fan packs. Okay. Preferably after it's cooled off a bit. Uh, it's, it does help, but it doesn't cool down for quite a while. Good couple of hundred, looking at about 400 odd degrees in the turbine section, sitting there after shutdown. So do you wear any protective gear to, to get in there on like knee pads or anything? No, you, you just get in as, as fast as you can and get out. <laughs> it's a very quick inspection. Quick and thorough. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thorough. Yeah. Sorry. Always thorough. <laughs> so how do you get on top? Um, have you got like access ports that you can kick your foot into or is there, there uh, a, a ladder that you use? Uh, no, no. We still we use the crew entrance ladder. Okay. Uh, so we throw that up on the side and we jump up just behind the, the actual wing assembly itself. Okay. Uh, in a designated walk zone. Okay. Cool. So um, now, what kind of training did you go through to, to become a techo with the RAF? Yeah, so I did uh, initial training down at uh, 1RTU, learning what the military is and how to march and wear a uniform. Yeah. Uh, from there, went to sunny old Bogga and yeah. uh, spent 48 weeks learning how to, how to, what an engine is, how it works, anything hydraulics, what, how the hydraulic systems work, fuel systems, uh, airframes, structural components of the aircraft or how to make an aircraft, uh, pretty much all the base skills you need to yep. come out and start swinging spanners. And uh, so you've, the whole time you've been based here at Amberley? Uh, yeah, that's correct, so yeah, seven years okay. on type. And have you had any exercises, taking you overseas, things like that? Uh, yeah, done done quite a few, out to lovely Tyndall, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as, as everyone. Yeah. Uh, apart from that, been to Newcastle down in New South Wales, Adelaide, Darwin, Townsville, uh, yeah, probably the big trips that I liked was uh, over to Malaysia 
you know, six, yeah, yeah for, for that one, and doing Red Flag in 2009 for the last time. Oh right, yeah, the last, the last F111 crew to Red Flag. Yeah, yeah so that was a, a big highlight for me. Yeah, it was, it was good to see. So now that we're retiring the pig, uh, where to now for you, sir? From here, I am heading back to Wagga. <laughs> Lucky me, uh, but this time I'm uh, on the other side of the fence, and I'll be training the new trainees. Okay. Yes. This is a spanner. This is a turbine. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm yep. my trusty side cutters and uh, yep. let them learn what lock wire is. No, still still staying as corporal and uh, hopefully uh, since they've identified aircraft trade is got some openings. Yeah, hopefully after a couple of years, pick up another another hook. Maybe what go to the Rhino or would you, anywhere they take you? Yeah. Uh, I I yeah, don't know really where I'd go after that. I, yeah. I might uh, maybe maybe Adelaide. Yeah, like P3s and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think uh, by the time I'm looking at getting out of Wagga, the P3s should be on the way out and new aircraft starting. Potentially, the rumour has it the P8 at Poseidon, yeah. So that'll get you pretty set up on a 737 systems. Yes, very much so. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it depends on how, how life t- treats me down in Wagga, I yep. guess. Hey, you could enjoy it too more, you know, like lording it over everyone. You could <laughs> <laughs> Big power trip, I guess. <laughs> We've asked most people today uh, that we've spoken to the same questions that we'll ask you as well. Is it, uh, how do you feel about the... Um, a lot of people seem quite emotionally attached to the F-111s. Were you sad to see them go? Looking forward to the new era ahead? And... Yeah, it's a, a love-hate relationship with the jet. Um, it'll be sad to see it go, but at the same time, it'll be good. Uh, obviously 1950s designs on the jet with a 60s build date uh, so a lot of the technology now is out of date but is great for developing the hand skills needed for the young guys but yeah. it's no longer being used by most of the aircraft that the air force is getting so it, 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 it'll be sad it's, it's sort of like the guys maintaining the caribou and all that they had some great skills they were doing some great stuff but they couldn't apply it anywhere else that's it yes Except for the warbird movement outside the Air Force, but that's a whole different world. <laughs> Indeed. Well, we speak, appreciate you spending some time with us, Excellent. and uh, we wish you well for yeah, uh, right. future career. Cool. Thanks, Thank mate. You. Cool. Um, my name is David Bash. I'm a corporal with uh, the RAF. Um, my role here is an aviation technician yep. for the F-111. David, you've, uh, we've, we've spoken to engineers, we've spoken to techos, so we've got a good understanding of that, but there's something unique here that we're hearing, and uh, it's called an accent. Where are you from, mate? I'm from California, uh, Southern California. Um, I came over on a lateral conversion. Basically, it's uh, something that's developed through the government here in Australia through a labor agreement that allows um, Defense Force members from other countries, uh, five included, which is South Africa, UK, Canada, New Zealand, and the United States is part of that agreement. So um, I basically applied for a position um, through the Defence Force, through the Defence Force and for Australia, was preliminarily accepted into uh, joining the Defence here, and uh, at the time I was in the United States Navy, Okay. and I was a technician, aviation technician for the United States Navy. I was, actually I was stationed in uh, Japan, Okay. and um, it actually came about, um, my ex-wife and I actually split up. Um, and we had two kids, and I wanted to provide my kids with an opportunity to know their father. So my ex-wife being Australian, and that I had met on a previous deployment back in 2002 when I was in the Gulf for Operation Iraqi Freedom, yep. and I came in on a port visit to Western Australia on the USS Abraham Lincoln. Okay. So 
that's how it all started. <laughs> Inevitably, the novelty wore off with her being married to an um, American defense member and always being away from home. Um, so we split up. I wanted to give my kids the opportunity to know their yeah. father. Um, bit hard being from a different, uh, in a different country, yeah. you know, being a, you know, that far away from Australia. So I networked, found out there's, um, you know, this lateral conversion program yeah. available. Uh, I got preliminary accepted for it. Um, I got my um, defense contract in the U.S. defense uh, severed yep. um, through the approval process of going th going into the defense force here in Australia. Yep. Um, utilized a military scholarship that I have with the, my Montgomery GI Bill to be an overseas student okay. in uh, Australia. So became a University of Southern Queensland student at the time I was going through my lateral conversion process wow. in country. So I was doing all that and studying full-time on campus in Toowoomba's USQ. Yep. Um, just finishing up my Bachelor of Vocational Education and Training okay. um, through the University of Southern Queensland and uh, yeah, working on my next posting which will be in Wagga as um, a training developer. Okay, so you two guys are both going to wind up in Wagga boarding yeah. it up. Cool. Now, uh, Grant and I have both previously uh, spent uh, quite some time living in the U.S., so we can uh, notice some cultural differences, but how do you find the difference in culture between the U.S. military and the Australian military? Is it that much different? Or it's, uh, I don't know it's a lot smaller here. But... Um, there's, there's definitely some differences, um, but I think one of the things that I, I notice most of all is, um, uh, well, I don't, I don't want to really say that there's more camaraderie within the Defence Force in Australia, um, but I actually embrace the idea of coming in Australia and I really have enjoyed the opportunity to be working alongside with Australians in the Australian yeah. Defence Force. Um, yeah, it's just been a good experience. I, I don't know much more to say, you know, yep. there's not really anything negative to say about, you know, in, in comparison, it's different. Yep. There is a difference there, but yeah. um, uh, about how they go about, you know, their, your regular... Um, responsibilities within the defense but um, very professional organization this is and I, otherwise I wouldn't be in it mm, yeah. I'll, you know so yeah, yeah. No, so I've it's, enjoyed it it's, yeah. it's not like it's better or worse it's, it's that it's it's just different with like our accent we speak the same language but I think you know it, if there's anything I think they're more family orientated okay than back back home in the defense force I mean I was at one point I was on a ten and a half month deployment and we did operations in Afghanistan and Iraq yeah and it didn't matter if family, somebody was dying in your family. Yeah. You were you were out there. You were that was it. There was no questions asked. You know that yeah. that was it. You were pretty much destined to stay out at sea on that deployment, yeah. regardless of what was going on back at home. On Where station. here it's yeah. different. You know, if um if you're on operations, let's say for instance in a, a different part of Australia, if you got a family member sick at yeah. home, there no questions asked. They'll get you back home to your family, no matter what. And mm -hmm. That's one thing I've really embraced about the defense in Australia. They they really care about their members, you know. Okay. And not to say that the defense back home doesn't really care about their members, but I mean they're just more family oriented, yeah. I think. Mm, so yeah. Yeah. plus also the slight difference, like there you're actually in what is technically a war situation. Yeah. Whereas here, well, I mean, if uh, it would be interesting to see if the same would happen if you were on duty with um, Australian Defence Forces in Afghanistan.
Afghanistan and so on. Yeah. One, one example is, is that my first child was born while I was on, on my deployment in 2004 and um, pre premature in the hospital and intensive care and I had four Red Cross mem messages sent to the, the ship on the USS Abraham Lincoln or at USS John C. Stennis. That was my okay. next deployment. On the USS John C. Stennis off the coast of Japan and there was nothing getting me home. I got home, I, my son was nearly four months old. Wow. Yeah. So, and I wouldn't see that, foresee that happening in this defense. You know, I can't really speak for the fact of anybody having a child while they're on deployment, but yeah. I've seen, I've seen members and how they've been taken care of, you know, in regards to their family situations and okay. pretty good. When you were uh, on the, in the U.S. Navy and working over there, were you working on the, uh, the FA-18 predominantly or? Um, no, actually, I was working on the S3B Viking. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Actually, we hosted uh, George W. Bush in uh, May 1st, 2003 to be flown onto the USS Abraham Lincoln after a 10 and a half oh, month deployment. Yeah, yeah. Just off the coast of California, yeah. he flew in, yeah. yeah my, my executive officer, uh, Commander Lucier, actually, actually flew in with uh, George W. Bush. And they had re-schemed the, the aircraft Navy One yep. to fly it in. Yep. So we'd actually finished the ten month, ten and a half month deployment. We're off the coast of uh, San Diego. They flew two of our jets back to North Island Naval Air Station. Yep. Uh, re-schemed one Navy One, like Air Force One. <laughs> yeah. After, um, yeah, after they decided that they were going to use S three as for um, hosting the president yep. to be flown back on. And it was the first time in the history of the U.S. that any um, American president was flown in a fixed wing aircraft onto a ship yeah and yeah, I think they the opened track, that door yeah. because he was an international guard pilot early yep. in in his life when he was at, you know flying yeah cool yeah okay. so I had an opportunity to shake his hand he did the commencement speech on that day yeah on on the carrier um, on the flight deck and yeah at okay. VS 35 I was part of VS 35 um, and decommissioned them as well yeah back yeah. in 2000 and Actually, a year later, 2004 is when we decommissioned. Okay. At the end of 2004 into 2005, yeah. Okay. But, when yeah. I was living in the States, I was living with a retired Air Force family, so I noticed a commonality in rank, say, between uh, the Army and the Air Force, but I noticed that U.S. Naval rank is different in terms of the way it's named and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you find that, it's just an interesting thing for me, do you find that a challenge coming here and our rank structure obviously is more British-orientated, so do you yeah, find that um, an interesting thing to get used to? Well, yeah, I mean, it was it was a bit different because um, uh, you actually have different um, amounts of ranks in your enlistment rankings. You have um, less rankings yeah. um, where in the, let's say, for instance, in the Navy, you go all the way up to Master Chief, yeah. you know, yeah. um, which is E9, you know, where you start if you're in a in an air, you know, in an airman sort of mustering. You start off as an airman apprentice. Air, you actually airman recruit, airman apprentice, airman. Um, third class petty officer, second, uh, third class petty officer, second class petty officer, first class petty officer, chief, senior chief, master chief. Yeah. It's quite a bit of ranks there. Yeah, yeah. But if um, I'm there, yeah, basically um, what my rank right now would equate to is the rank of uh, an E5, E6. Okay. Yeah, and as far as lining up the different ranking yeah, structure yeah. with um, how Australia does it in the, yeah. in the RAF vice back home. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right, then. Well, it's uh, really interesting. Uh, you know, it's, it's obviously an interesting day for us here, but uh, it's it's great to find an American working with our forces, and uh, we, we thank you for being here with us. Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've been... I really enjoyed this whole experience. This is my fifth time in Australia since two, December 2002. Yeah. A couple times on deployment 
coming into WA, flown in a few times on vacation with family. Um, yeah, this is my home now. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, he's he's he's, he's descended man. That's it. You, you I'm sold. It. Yeah, yeah. I'm sold. That's it. Yeah. Oh, welcome aboard, mate. And it's yeah. great to have you here. And thank you also for helping keep everything in the air, mate. Yeah, really you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to going down to Wagga as well and, and helping on the training side. Yeah. You know, and hopefully whatever comes to that, um, it's going to start off with maybe training and development and instruction yep. and maybe develop into something more um, just yep. have to see how it goes. Yep. Okay. Thanks. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, mate. Thanks very much. Thanks. Great to meet you. Close your eyes and think about what you want to become. Now add a little extra excitement and a fair bit of adventure. Then picture mates around you just as dedicated and interested as you are. Imagine getting specialised training in your choice of job, plus unique experiences that money can't buy. Got a pen to write down this number and web address? Because chances are, no matter what occupation you imagined, you'll find it. With over 60 different jobs to choose from in the Air Force. Call 13 or visit defencejobs.gov.au. Air Force. Accomplished. Looking for a studio to record your next project? From recording and song production to music videos, disc duplication, and DVD presentation kits designed to get you noticed. Audiovisual Media is more than just a recording studio. It's a complete solution for musicians with recording and music video packages available. Record your next project at Audiovisual Media and score free studio time. To find out how, visit our website at www.audiovisualmedia.com.au or call us on 0407. 091524 Rob Ruth Ryan Rose Rob Ruth Ryan 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 Fly Army to 131901 or visit defencejobs.gov.au. Army, challenge yourself. We're standing here once again in the shelter of F-111C and this time we're with Flight Lieutenant Vlad Bismarck. Vlad, you went, gave us a bit of a briefing earlier this morning and then went and flew an attack, a mock attack run, is that correct? Correct, yes. Uh, we went out to the Western Airspace, uh, did some low-level uh, attacks or uh, PES toss profile and uh, popped a dive. And then from there we went up to the north to Evans Head and, uh, and conducted some threat reactions and some more attacks there as well. Okay. Now Evans Head is a is a live gunnery range. Uh, it's a live bombing range. Uh, we don't. I think we used to do gunnery, but uh, now it's all bombing. Uh, okay. What you do, just practice bombs. Yeah. Uh, we're trying to see what what we can do with it, but uh, yeah, at the moment it's just a practice bombing range yeah. for us. Yeah. So they're the little concrete bombs that are. Are they the same as the full size blue ones over there? Or are no, they? they're they're smaller. They're like twenty five yeah. kilo. Yeah. Twenty five kilo bombs. So we we can carry about up to six per wing so about 12 all up they're just little yeah little guys about 40 centimeters long and uh yeah paint, painted yellow or something yeah yeah they're blue as well oh okay yeah, yeah. yep yep and they have uh, similar ballistics to the, okay. the mark 80 series weapons so if you can get one of those in the bullseye you're doing pretty well yeah correct yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay so how long does a, a mission like that run for us normal day to day we usually so if we're doing a, a high low high mission we're about two hours two and a half hours okay 
for us today was just a purely a low-level mission, which uh, took us about an hour and a half. Okay. Uh, so that was all at low level. Would you have transited over the top of um, Coolangatta Airport? Uh, no, we didn't. No, we didn't transit over it. No. Okay. There's been a couple of times I've been down there hanging out, and you see an F-111 at altitude, like 2,000 feet or so, going over the top. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's uh, a nice scenic area. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, mate, how long have you been with the F-111? Uh, it started in July '07. Nearly three and a half years now. Did you come straight out of training into the F-111? Yeah. So um, I went. Uh, so I finished my two FTS course in Perth in November '05. Yeah. Went on to Hawks in January. Uh, did a whole year of that. So basically six months in Perth, six months in Newcastle. So I did all my uh, intro to fighter course in Newcastle, yep. uh, and then I had uh, six months. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, an ops flight, kind of a okay. consolidation on the Hawk okay. Perth. Uh, so that was that took me to June 07, and then I basically got posted to Six Squadron, yep. where I started my operational conversion on the F-11 in July 07. Okay. Graduated in uh, November 07, and then uh, did our operational up- upgrade at Six Squadron again, okay. which was another six months, uh, and then posted to One Squadron when the F-11 was there. Okay. So did you get much time in the G and as part of your training and conversion? No, um, our course was uh, the first course to go straight through seas because okay. they had just retired the, the Gs when right. we got there. So okay. we unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, we didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, uh, so you've spe- what exercises have you done in and out of Australia? Uh, in Australia, I've done plenty of exercises. So we've done uh, Pitch Black in 08, yeah. done Talisman Sabre. Oh. I've done... Uh, it looks like... Yeah. yeah, so Kakadu, Singaroo, Aces South, Aces North. Okay. Um, we've done our Northern Challenge, which is our graduation exercise. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, overseas, we've been to Red Flag. Uh, we've done uh, the Basama Shield as yeah. well. Uh, and then we went to New Zealand once for a, for a mountain trainer. Okay. Yeah, mount, mountain strain trainer there oh, as yeah. well. So. Oh, there's lots of mountains there. Yeah, <laughs> no, that, was, that was good fun. So. Cool. Yeah. Did you get any um, further overseas than New Zealand? Uh, no, that was it, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. How do you find the F-111 to fly? Uh, it's, it's a Cadillac. It's yeah. really nice. So at low level, uh, because it's such a big aircraft, it yeah. just cuts through the air really nicely. Uh, compared to the Hawk, the Hawk's really bumpy as okay. such, so uh, short wings, but whereas this, uh, you can sweep the wings back and it's just a big, tough aircraft <laughs> to fly. It's really nice, yeah. Boosts that wing loading and it's really hard to get bumped around. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> cool. No, it's good. What's the sensation like at like, you know, 200 feet doing terrain following with the radar flying the aircraft? During the day, it's not too bad because you can see the terrain. Yeah. Uh, at night, when we first started flying that without no, night vision goggles, it was really, really scary. Okay. Because uh, you were basically relying on the jet, yeah. on its systems to uh, to avoid the ground. <laughs> so it's it's all it's basically goes against all your instincts to survive, because there you are, you know the terrain's there, but you just can't see it, and you're just trusting the jet to to fly you out of it. So. Did you ever get um, like a bit nauseous with the jet, you know, throwing you through a bit of G's up and down around the place that you couldn't see coming? No, luckily I was one of the guys that didn't has well touch wood hasn't thrown up yet so <laughs> but it does it does happen i imagine if you're in a pitch black environment and yeah, it's just yeah. suddenly you know positive negative g and things like that sometimes yeah when uh especially at night when we're doing instrument flying you can get the, the leans so yeah. uh when when you feel the jets turning when it's not um and when sometimes when you get a massive acceleration you feel like the nose is pitching up more than it's supposed yeah. to be and you just have to rely on your instruments and okay. keep flying and yeah. we get taught all that so we, we know what to look out for have you ever done a dump and burn 
Yes, yeah, I did one earlier this year, my first one. I think it'll be my only one, but uh, over <laughs> over Adelaide, Calypso 500. Okay. Was, yeah. What's it like? What's, okay, what's the... Now, the process is you're venting. Is it directly out the back? That's a radar warning receiver right at the back between the nozzles, no, no, is it? that's the fuel dump vent. That is, the, that that is, is just the fuel dump okay. vent, yeah. So, so that's... Uh, we have full afterburners, yep. and we just flick the fuel dump switch, and that's all it is. Okay. And I believe it gives you a bit of a kick in the bum? Uh, yeah, I guess so. When, when yeah. the when the afterburners come in, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, yeah, but not, so, not, not in terms of the not the dumping burn. So it's just purely visual. There's no real impact on how you fly, except suddenly you're empty. Correct. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Now um, you mentioned night vision goggles. How's the transition to those been? It's been great. They they just slide up your your world. So okay. it's uh it's amazing what you what you can see through them at night that you can't without them sort of thing. So, so they, they sort of like show everything in green, or is it a real colour? It's green, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. It's like a you know like the computer games. Yeah, put my vision goggles, yeah. everything goes green. Yeah. <laughs> and and what was involved in converting? Uh, just a couple of flights, just uh, okay. with an instructor, just to show the illusions, uh, yeah. what to look out for, what depth of field is that? Yeah, depth, that's yeah, that's pretty that big in there as well. Okay. So. Of course, F-111 is a really uh, unique aircraft, and one thing it shares in common with the old F-14 Tomcat is the variable, variable sweep wings. Can you can you explain to us how you would configure the aircraft for different modes of flight? So, um, basically, when we are taking off and landing, it's uh, the wings are fully forward, uh, and that's all manually controlled. We've got a lever in the cockpit that does that. Uh, as soon as we uh, get up to speed, we usually use the rule of 10% of our indicated airspeed is what will set our degrees of wing sweep angle. So, at 350 knots, we'll set 35 wing. 400 knots, we'll set 40 wing sweep. Uh, and you, you do notice a difference in turn rate and turn radius yeah. uh, depending on, the, on where, the, where the wings are so sometimes you're, you know, you're running away from a guy but then you want to turn back into him as fast as you can and your wings are all the way back you, you basically do a massive turn radius because your wings are all the way back yeah. so yeah. you have to remember to put the wings forward if and you've got the, the wings back does it inhibit your ability to use the, the trailing edge flaps anything like that yes, uh, yeah, so the flaps can only come out when they're forward of 26 degrees right. and uh, that's, that's just for that land takeoff and landing yeah. sort of stuff yeah Yep. So uh, when they're fully back, you can't. There's a lockout there, a mechanical lockout on the on the lever, so we can't put the flaps down to damage or do anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Okay. And are you converting across to the uh, Super Hornet like most other people we've talked to today? Yeah, yeah. Eventually. So um, I'm off to Tamworth to uh, instruct the new guys off the blocks. So I'll be flying the City Fours uh, there for about a year, two yeah, years. A change. Yeah. So we'll be going from <laughs> flying Mark Two to. To yeah. find pretty pretty slow, but uh, lucky to get 120 knots. Not yeah, 120 <laughs> knots. That's right. Yeah, yeah. but uh, no, it should be good. Um, I'm looking forward to it. So okay. it'll be a, it'll be new. Something about the pig that we've missed out on is there's no new guys coming through, yeah. so you can't you can't teach them or you can't practice teaching guys how to how to fly. Yeah. So this uh, this posting to Tamworth will be good to get that experience in teaching guys how to fly and how to okay. mentoring them on uh, how to be better pilots. Yeah, yeah. yeah so okay. give it back to the refs. So, yeah. Cool. Excellent. Okay. Thanks very much for your time, Vlad. Oh, really right. appreciate it. And joining us on the line now from ADFserials.com is Brendan Cowan. And from the Save the F-111 page on Facebook, it's Chris Daly. Gentlemen, welcome. Good evening. Evening. Now, Brendan, uh, you've been uh, a bit of a contributor on our forums and uh, sending us bits of information here and there and participating on Twitter uh, since we started PCDU. And um, perhaps you can uh, fill us in for the audience a bit of your history and a bit of uh, ADF Serials history and what it's all about. Yes, happy to do that. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, I've uh, yeah, had a lifelong love of aviation like most of us uh, in, in, in this uh, in this sort of sphere. And my best, uh, basically I've been... Uh, uh, a lifelong uh, aviation person, uh, air training corps, air league, bit of uh, pilot training in my younger days. I decided I didn't want an air force career, and so I joined the Department of Defence and uh, lived there for 16 years, <laughs> where I uh, 
was eventually the Director of Defence Information Systems. But um, I guess uh, where I come into this subject, the conversation, is that uh, one of my pursuits is the, um, the ADF uh, Serials website, which would be known to some of your listeners and uh, might be new to some others. Um, we basically had a group of people who like to uh, put as much of Australia's aviation history online. We've been doing that for about 11 years and uh, we uh, basically take uh, a view of putting uh, the status of every um, uh, Australian uh, uh, military aircraft, be that um, the Australian Flying Corps or the, the Central Flying Schools as it was back in uh, in, in the early days, uh, the Air Force, the Navy and uh, of, of course um, uh, the Army airframes as well. So uh, we've also been helping out a little bit with uh, the F-111 retirement by uh, tweeting some information for the Air Force about um, the individual airframes that have been operated by the RAAF uh, in the F-111 fleet. And uh, Chris, what about you? Now, uh, the Save the F-111, we should say for our listeners, if, uh, if you don't follow the Save the F-111 page on Facebook, uh, uh, well worth following. It's got uh, fantastic stories and fantastic photos on there. But uh, Chris, how did this page come about? Uh, it was basically started in March of last year, basically as a grassroots campaign when um, it was announced in the mainstream media that the F-111s would be scrapped when they were retired. So obviously that type of announcement caused a fair bit of concern amongst yeah. the aviation world. So it was it was started to, um, to sort of see if there could be some communication between the governments and uh, Department of Defence to try and get some of those airframes into museums onto public display to sort of save them from the scrapper's axis, as it were. And it's sort of since moved from that aim to being more about preserving the history and getting the history out to sort of everyone that got an interest in the F-111. And just looking at the number of people as I look at the site now, there's uh, more than 3,100 people that are in fact uh, following the site. So it's a, it's a very popular page. It is, it is. It's, it's getting more people coming along all the time and I think the the best thing about it is is the type of people that are actually contributing um, we've got air crew ground crew that have worked on the F-111s in Australia and America people from all over the world that have sort of all come together out of a common love of the F-111 some of the photographs you sort of you won't see anywhere else and it's all operational photographs of um, American and Australian F-111s. Yeah, you've got stuff coming in from all over the world. I've seen photos from uh, F-111 staging out of the UK and in Europe, uh, the US, Australia. It's great. Well, gentlemen, we, one of the things we've really found over this, uh, the course of doing this program, and particularly since the F-111 retirement is, is looming, and even as we record this now, it's it's come and gone, there's a real fondness amongst the Australian community, it seems, for these aircraft. There's more, more than 40 airframes, I believe, that, that cycled their way through RAF service. Uh, there must be uh, more than one or two interesting stories that we could uh, we could find about them. Uh, yes, uh, quite a few. And in fact, you're right. Um, there are uh, there are more F-111s that have been on the Australian inventory that uh, most, most people appreciate. We've had four 43 flyers actually sort of wear the uh, the A8 code and, uh, and fly with the RAAF. But uh, altogether, we've had 57 airframes actually sort of tagged uh, for um, the RAAF. So that includes um, a ground 
instructional aircraft and others held at uh, Davis Monthan, Arizona as, uh, as uh, spare sources and also one which was uh, actually came over ex-USAF to uh, the Defence Science Technology Organisation for uh, static testing. Uh, in fact, it was tested to destruction. And uh, some of the airframes that we've got have got uh, particularly interesting histories. If, if you look at, um, uh, we had the, the original 24 F-11Cs delivered to us uh, and of course uh, uh, they became the very, very last in service. Also, um, F-111As, of which we had four, um, those are the four flyers anyway, um, those four have significant combat histories with the US Air Force in Vietnam, and um, some of them have been uh, had, uh, had uh, uh, pretty interesting service lives, including uh, A-8113, uh, the, uh, the, one of the F-111A airframes. Uh, that flew the very last um, F-111 mission in Vietnam, and uh, is of a lot of interest also back to the folks in the States, the and uh, there's rumours and scuttlebutt, and maybe Chris can tell us a bit about this, um, that uh, the USAP Museum have been having uh, discussions with our folks here in Australia about possibly um, having that airframe return for display back in the US. US. But uh, that's all rumour and scuttlebutt. I can't confirm that one. So, Chris, have you heard anything about that one? I, I haven't heard anything about 113. I've heard, again, rumours and scuttlebutt about a couple of other airframes that will be going to um, or possibly going to Point Cook. I know that there are a couple of airframes, I'm not sure of their numbers, that will be going back to America for display, but individual numbers I haven't heard anything about. Yeah, well, certainly preservation. Um, we've, we've got um, two going to Point Cook. One, of course, is already there. Um, uh, uh, 272, the Boneyard Wrangler, a very famous F-111. Even, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not often, in fact, this is a, a fairly unique thing, it's not often that the general public will know an individual Air Force airframe. But uh, the Boneyard Wrangler is pretty well known to anyone who goes to, to an air show over the last few years um, as, the, uh, as the aircraft that was uh, the only F-11 that came out of desert storage there in Arizona at, uh, and, uh, and actually got returned uh, to flight. All the other F-111Gs that, uh, that, that, we, that we purchased uh, later on in the F-111s were all operational airframes. So uh, uh, the Boneyard Wrangler gets its name because obviously uh, it came out of the Boneyard. So uh, a very unique airframe and that's one that's, that's, that's preserved and on display today. Uh, Point Cook will also get another airframe, probably 125 as the first and last F-111 to, to land in Australia, uh, both in 1973, it was in the first group of six that arrived here, uh, and it was the very last F-111 to touch down. Amberley are going to get two, uh, one of which will be gate guard. One it will go to RAF Edinburgh, also as a gate guard. Two more are going to go other places. Uh, it's been very difficult, um, as, as Chris will be able to let us know a little bit more about, I'm sure, to actually um, achieve preservation, given that uh, the requirements were actually um, successfully tendering for an F-111 airframe is that it's got to be demilled, which means that uh, you've got to spend about a million dollars or so oh, wow. um, making the aircraft safe. So when we say demilled, that usually means that you're making it uh, incapable of further flight or military service. Uh, we're also saying in these days demilled means they take a million dollars off you to do that, so you'll be demilled too. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting there, uh, Brendan, when you talk about different aircraft and their build numbers, but I'm just looking here at the, of course, they've got their A8 ADF serial numbers, but I'm just noticing looking through your list here that they've got different construction numbers numbers, it appears that the ones that were only used by the RAF start with a D, is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. They were their own um, uh, run there. Uh, in fact, they were a suborder off the F-111A order for the, for, for the USAP. 
Um, but yeah, basically, uh, the construction numbers issued by General Dynamics were uh, were generally in batch runs that uh, represented uh, some of the different model model numbers that they had there. Oh, I'm just noticing as I go further down that the G models seem to be a B1 construction number. Yeah, oh. of course, because they were all originally uh, constructed as uh, FB111A, so they were, they were actual designated bomber. I mean, the whole designation of F111 itself is uh, is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, it's uh, it's the last of the century series fighter sort of uh, <laughs> uh, designations, but in fact, um, it was only ever. Uh, really called the F-111 to get it through um, uh, through Congress as far as getting its funding. That brings me to an interesting question. Uh, we were talking about this with David Vanderhoof earlier about the Americans. They designated it the Aardvark and later on the Raven or the Sparkvark. But in Australia, yes. we called it the Pig, and I don't actually know why it is it was called the Pig. Do you know anything about that, or do either of you know about that? The Aardvark name was uh, only officially adopted by the USAF after the F-111 was retired, and Aardvark is actually an Afrikaans word which means ground pig and because the RAAF F-111s sort of over their service specialised in, in low level attack it was sort of always always a bit of a joke that they were always rooting around in the ground like pigs <laughs> so um, because of the, the English translation from the word aardvark being ground pig it was sort of a, um, a bit of an obvious choice to, to call the Australian F-111s pigs Pig was always an affectionate term for the F-111. Uh, in fact, uh, my contacts always used to tell me that the, it was its ability to get down low and move mud because also uh, anything that drops bombs in, uh, in from an army perspective is a, is a mud mover. Um, so, uh, so following on from the aardvark, it's also the get down low and move mud. Having seen some of the videos of them going high speed past buildings and shattering windows, yeah, moving not just with bombs. <laughs> yeah, those uh, th- those sound waves and that compression can do it too. Uh, I guess one of the background facts is, um, is that the F-111 uh, has very much been a major deterrent um, for the uh, for, for, this, um, for Australian strategic posture um, in terms of its ability to uh, have long range, um, to to have multiple missions, to uh, to, to, to you know, from uh, sea interdiction to to, uh, to, to long-range delivery, but it's only one of our F-111s that's ever actually done uh, an operational mission, uh, 8143, which uh, is part of the the Interfet sort of um, thing over East Timor, uh, actually took a lot of um, uh, reconnaissance uh, 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 photographic sort of uh, sorties um, over, over East Timor. At the time that we were sending people in on the ground, it was very uncertain. So um, it, so it's, uh, you can say that the F-111 has been pretty successful at its mission of being a deterrent and having only had one airframe actually go operational on us. That's something that's always interested me, Brendan, and I, I don't know whether you know the answer to this or not, but when, um, when the Air Force uh, deployed across to Iraq to uh, engage in, the I guess, the 2003 mm. operations there, the RAF sent FA-18 Hornet and I've always been of the opinion that the role that was to be performed there would probably have been better suited to the F-111. Do we know why it was that the Air Force chose to send Hornets instead? Um, it was basically um, compatibility. But basically, um, you, but you're right, the, the F-111s actually did work up and there was an operation contingency um, um, plan put in place to actually deploy the F-111 for, 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 for Gulf War. And in fact, it was also used as a, as a training asset um, uh, with the F-18 and um, it's uh, it's got some unique capabilities that uh, and it was the only thing could mimic, mimic the 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 Mu twenty five Foxbat, which was also being used by Iraqi forces in Gulf War One. Um, so it was also used as a training aid. So you could say it was uh, it helped deploy our Hornets for, for their operational uh, deployments. 
It's one of the interesting things that uh, Wing Commander Mika Gray uh, said in the press conference here on the media day that uh, they were quite proud of the fact that, you know, the aircraft were always there and ready to be used if needed, but um, fortunately they were never needed. And, you know, I guess, um, and he yeah. made the point, and well, I guess I agree that it's a, it's a good thing that they weren't needed to be used. Yes, but uh, they remained capable up to the end and capable all the way through. I mean, for their first 10 years of operation, we, we, we basically used the F. 11, it's pretty much in its as-delivered form. But uh, with the progressive series of upgrades, modifications uh, that have gone on that have turned uh, the analogue pig into the digital pig uh, in, in Air Force service, it's been a very, very capable airframe, um, capable of, uh, of, of far more than anything else in the region. In fact, in some cases, uh, uh, anything else that the was actually in any Air Force's fleet. So a very formidable uh, weapon system. Now, um, the history of these aircraft hasn't been, uh, I guess, perfect, particularly in the earlier days. We have lost a few airframes. Can we can we perhaps talk about uh, some of those airframes that were involved in uh, in crashes? Yeah, certainly. Uh, in, in the in the earlier years, we had um, yeah, it got a lot of media, and we had a lot of uh, we had quite a number of losses. In fact, and there been a lot of incidents, of course, which the F-111s have recovered and successfully come home from as well. So they're also fairly sturdy and robust aircraft. But in the early days, the, if you think about the F-111. It's 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 an aircraft that's brought together a number of individual features which were unique at the time the F-111 was was built. Um, so it was uh, the first operational aircraft, sort of uh, in our service anyway, to have uh, have the swing wing. The world's first aircraft to have an afterburning uh, turbofan engine. Uh, the first to have a a, a a crew escape module instead of uh, ejection seats. Lots of the alloys that were used were the, were the very first time they had been used. And there's an old old uh, old adage in aviation that says um, uh, you should never mate a new engine with a new airframe. Well, the F-111 did more than that. It did new technologies, new engines, new airframe, so many things, and uh, different different uh, intake uh, configurations, etc., to, to solve various problems. So the Air Force um, did lose uh, quite a uh, well. We've lost um, uh, about seven aircraft. I should should count that up. It, it, it's about that. We've lost. Um, I think it was six of those being uh, uh, Charlie models and uh, and one one Golf model. Um, and uh, not all of those. Have, some of those have been fatal losses. Um, so some, uh, some some people known to me. Uh, Actually uh, lost in, uh, in in one of those those crashes. Um, I'll never forget uh, the, the loss of A8127 uh, with uh, Mark Cairns Cowan and Jeremy Ness. Also another good friend of mine, fairly well known person, um, Dennis Hurley was on the on a photographic flight with those that aircraft, and I had an aircraft a photograph of that aircraft in flight when um, uh, Dennis has actually taken some photographs from another F. Eleven, uh, he peeled off, and then later on um, they hit the ground, um, and uh, yeah, it, um, that was back in '93. So we, we've we've lost a few, but considering a 37-year operational life, and not forgetting the mission that the F-111 has, which is a pretty dangerous one, flying um, with its terrain following radar, another first, um, low level at night in bad conditions uh, and considering uh, I think uh, uh, the RWF has done, done done a pretty good job in keeping the airframes in service um, and um, but we shouldn't forget the losses that have uh, that have um, yeah, kept that deterrent uh, capability there it's, uh, it's it's not an easy job uh, for the groundies or for the folks who fly them but uh, I guess it's also unique that um, Australia actually uh, created a full industrial capability to actually support the F-111 long past the, the out-of-service state that the, the US Air Force had. So uh, it, it actually seemed to become safer as it got older, which is uh, unusual. Well, we probably need to wrap it up there, gentlemen. It's, it's been a fascinating discussion, and I, I tell you what, uh, the F-111 is going to certainly live on for, for many years to come in the, in the minds of those of us in Australia who are so enthusiastic about aviation. Um, Chris, uh, you've 
you've got the the site here, of course, on Facebook. Are there plans to morph that into a, a more mainstream website? I don't think so at the moment. I think the way the Facebook page is going with so many people joining up all the time and, and all the photos and, and stories and that being posted up, I think it's it's probably just going to be left as a Facebook page. But I mean, yeah, there's so many people on Facebook, they're going to be able to find it pretty easily. We're not interested in like, getting any credit for anything. We just want to make available a space where everyone can put their photos and stories and reignite friendships and working relationships and that that people have had and lost and getting more of the more of the F111 story out into the public. We'd absolutely I- encourage our, uh, our audience to, if you're not already participating in that side, and I guess some people, there's, there might be a few people left on earth that uh, don't do Facebook, but uh, I think most <laughs> of us do. So uh, we'd, we'd certainly encourage our audience if you're not already a member of this page, it's uh, well worth getting on there. And if you are listening and you uh, had anything at all to do operationally with the with with the F111, well, this could be a good place to catch up with old mates. Absolutely. Did one mate? One last thing from me is uh, Brendan. You uh, you mentioned the famous uh, lessons from the F111 about not not mixing new airframes, new technologies, new engines, new everything together, and thus the phrase McNamara's folly, where he tried to join uh, Navy and Air Force into the one airframe. Uh, it seems that history <laughs> is definitely repeating itself with. Uh, Australia's latest uh, potential purchase than the F-35. Yeah, there, there, there is a lot of uh, lot of parallels you could draw to that era. Um, but uh, the, the, the um, yeah, one one size fits every problem, even the problem you hadn't thought of. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's, it's yeah. It seems we are repeating history with that airframe and. Uh, that, that, of course, makes people go, well, the F-111, everyone hated it, thought it was terrible, but look how good it was and look how long it lasted. And they're trying to drag that across the F-35. So it's going to be interesting to see if it can uh, share the same successes as the uh, the pig did. Time will tell, but um, I don't think we'll ever see an F-35 torching in an air display. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was actually going to say, as, as soon as uh, the F-35 develops twin engines and dump mass between the engines and swing wings i'm not sure i'll be too convinced about it <laughs> brendan of course uh, your your website once again is adf-serials.com about uh, you okay no problem well uh, gentlemen it's uh, quite late at night here as we record this and we really appreciate you coming on and uh, and participating in this this uh, really special episode of plane crazy down under we hope we can get you on again to talk again soon no worries Always happy to help we're standing here with Wing Commander Al Kerr. Alan, you are a F-111 navigator, and uh, how long have you been with the RAAF? Well, I joined the Air Force in 1967, so that makes it about 40, 45, 43 years. Yeah. Um, I joined straight out of school. Um, I had a great desire to uh, get into aviation, and um, I joined the Air Force to do navigator training. And from there, after I graduated, I went to Canberra's, went to Vietnam, did 12 months in Vietnam, dropping bombs, came back to Amberley, did about four years of um, recce flying in the Canberra's, and then got posted to F-111s in 1974. I was here in 73 when they arrived. They were a beautiful jet then. I knew I wanted to fly them, and I got my chance in, in 74, and I ended up getting uh, over 2,000 hours on the aeroplane. Um, I remember my first flight and just couldn't believe uh, a radar could give you so much information. Yeah. An aeroplane that had beautiful air conditioning compared to a Canberra, which was awful. <laughs> uh, no, a, a seat that was comfortable. You didn't have to strap into parachutes yeah. like you do in, a, in most ejection seats. And, uh, and a ride, a TFR ride that was as smooth as smooth, just incredible aeroplane. Yeah. And uh, it was everything I thought it would be. Um, I've 
I've had lots of experiences with the aeroplane. Of course, the one that sticks in my mind was an ejection in 1979, 26th of August, in fact. I was in New Zealand. The squadron had deployed over there to do maritime strike. In those days, we didn't carry the, um, the Harpoon missile, so you would go with a, a, a wing load of bombs and uh, try and saturate the uh, the ship's defensive capabilities so we always went as uh, four ships and this particular day there were four aeroplanes um, buckshot colt one and two got airborne no problems it had been wet wet as wet three days of rain the runway was flooded it's <laughs> very uh, ahakia yeah very ahakia the wind was blowing it was cold miserable raining low cloud as i say one and two got airborne um, and number three of which I was the navigator we hit a monster puddle of water halfway down the runway just before nose will lift off and the nose will shot a huge amount of water down both intakes this was before they put the chine tyres on um, yeah. uh, as we all know now the chine tyres disperse the water sideways well it didn't we didn't have them then and the uh, both engines flamed out and we were not going to get them back again because there was still water coming off the nose well even though it wouldn't be enough water to normally stall an engine the fact that the engines were stalled meant that uh, any little amount of water was interrupting the airflow and we weren't going to get the engines back. We were above refusal speed because the runway was so wet, so there's no way we are going to stop, even though the pilot had tried maximum braking, and this aeroplane has got sensational brakes. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. And you could feel the anti-skid working. Uh, it would release the pressure. The wheels would spin up. They'd apply the brakes. They'd hydroplane, skid, classic hydroplaning. Yep. And so um, we only lost 30, 30 or 40 knots, 40 knots in 5,000-foot runway. And I had my handle on the hand on the handle the whole way down the runway, knowing I was going to have to eject. Yeah. There's no way we we're going to stop. And at the end of the runway, I pulled the handle. Uh, I couldn't have left the knee later because the burn mark from the rocket motor was in, in the grass two feet off the end of the runway. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we we got the beautiful big bolt up the bum into the yeah. clouds, and the aeroplane went off the end of the runway. And as I came out of the clouds, all I could see was smoke and fire. And I thought, jeez, oh, we survived the ejection, <laughs> and we're going to end up on the top of the aeroplane and get burned to death. That's all I could think of. But as it was, uh, we landed about. Uh, 20 metres from the jet. Wow, and uh, close. Yeah, it was very close. Very lucky. It's just fortunate I was a bit heavier than the pilot, so the module had flown a little bit to the right. The aeroplane went hit the... It, 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 it dug a wing in on the ground. Unfortunately, it was the left wing, so it had skewed a little bit to the yeah. left. So that gave us that 20 metre separation. Otherwise, oh. it would have been right on top of it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Is the module designed to just go up and float down, or is it sort of a ballistic sort of... No, no, it goes straight up. Um, but we were still on the ground, of course, and we are doing about 90 knots. So we're right on the edge of the envelope. Uh, it couldn't have been a worse condition to eject under, but uh, it worked perfectly. The whole thing worked perfectly. But no, it shoots you straight in the air. All the parachute deployment and opening and everything worked perfectly. If it hadn't have, I wouldn't be here because there wouldn't not have been time. It's got a manual system to deploy the parachute, but yeah. I wouldn't have had time to deploy that. So um, if it hadn't worked as well as it did, I probably wouldn't be standing here now in front of you. The decision to eject, uh, that's your, the pilot's in command, or is it a joint well, decision? It's, it is, there's, a, there's a handle on each side, and of course it is the pilot in command's decision, but he uh, he was very inexperienced. He, he'd been flying caribous. The caribou will stop on a, on a <laughs> cricket, cricket pitch. Um, the doctors tell you that if you're facing death, you, you regress to a comfort zone. Your, your, your mind will take over and you'll go back to somewhere where you're comfortable. And he was comfortable and ejection wouldn't, wouldn't, have, been in his, um, wouldn't have been a consideration for him. That was why I was flying with him. He was a junior pilot. I was an experienced navigator. So, uh, you know, there was never any recriminations against me for pulling the handle because that's why I was in the jet with him, you know, and, and it was my life as much as his. So um, I had no, no doubt that it was, was what I was going to have to do. I just didn't want to do it. Yeah. And I, I waited till the very end before I had to do it, but at the end there was no choice. Yeah, you, yeah. Ha- you had to bang. And, yeah, yeah, had to bang, and it's, it's sad that we lost an aeroplane because if we'd known about the puddle of water that the Kiwis knew about but they didn't tell us, <laughs> then we would have taken off on the right-hand side where the other jets had and maybe yeah. all would have been sweet. Yeah, would have, would have dodged the ingestion. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Okay. 
Uh, okay, so you've come down, you've landed about 20 metres from the flaming wreckage. Yes, uh, yes. What happened from well, there? Well, all I could think of was uh, get away from the fire. So I jumped out and I was about to run off and I thought, oh, gee, I can't leave him behind, he's still there. So I went around and got Mark, reached in and uh, forklifted him out like I couldn't do that with 30 pounds. He's 150 pounds. <laughs> it just goes to show what adrenaline does. Oh, yeah. So I got him in my arms and I'm off. I'm running there. By this stage, there were witnesses at the top of the hill yep. who'd run out to see and I, I said it was like the Keystone Cops. So I'm running with him, <laughs> getting away and then I went to put him down and then I'm in a foot of water. So I thought, if I put him here, he'll drown yep. or he'll get pneumonia. So I ran back with him past the module to put him on the parachute closer to the burning wreck but at least he was warm and dry. <laughs> and, nice uh, and toasty. <laughs> and as it turned out, and the jet was exploding, it was full of fuel, had explosive chaff on board. But um, anyway, I put him down there and that night in hospital he had a terrible raucous cough. Yep. It was because when I put him on the parachute, he rolled on his side and there he was breathing in all the Teflon powder. Oh no. It's in, the, in the parachute so they don't, you okay. know, so they yep. open up nice and... Did uh, he continue in the raft just as an aside? He did for a while but now he's a... He's a Qantas 747 captain. Oh, okay. oh cool. So, you don't have to worry about these. So his cool. sore back is, uh, is eased by the thickness of his wallet. There you go. <laughs> Al, thank you very much for talking with us briefly on that one. I yeah. very much appreciate it, and thank you very much for serving in the F-111. Oh, thank you, mate. as well. Yeah. Thank you very much. We're here in the uh, maintenance base, uh, sorry, in the maintenance hangar now, and uh, we're very fortunate to have some time chatting with Wing Commander Mika Gray, the commanding officer of Sixth Squadron. Mika, thank you very much uh, for joining us on the show. Yeah, no, look, it's a pleasure. It's, uh, and it's great to have you here to see the whole, uh, the whole continuum of F-111 Ops. Uh, it's a good way to finish off the day in the maintenance hangar. Yep. Um, it's uh, obviously sent about the uh, the aircraft and the aircrew, but you know without the maintainers, uh, yeah. then we are nothing. Oh, uh, and you know I enjoy giving the guys the opportunity to show what they do, their professionalism, and uh, you know the great uh, tools and equipment they get to work with. Now, um, can you give us a bit of a background about your uh, career with the RAF? Uh, why did you start flying, and how did you start with the RAF? Yeah, I've always had an interest in aviation, and I think uh, military aviation. I was on the record as a three or four year old saying uh, that's what I want to do. Um, there was an elderly uh, friend who had, uh, was married to a you know, World War II uh, pilot, and I used to look at those photos in her place and you know, uh, be quite uh, uh, interested in that. Uh, and I think a lot of people in aviation, you know, it's, it's in you, you know what it is. You know. um, doesn't matter what aircraft or what you're flying, that people you know, love aviation. Yeah. Uh, I joined the Air Force um, after school, did a year of uni, and then came into the Air Force. Uh, and went straight on to the F-111 as a young pilot officer. So uh, okay. I've been on that aircraft and uh, did an exchange on tornadoes with the RAF along oh, right. the way. So, mm. so how, how was the tornado compared to the pig? Yeah, it was great. Um, the whole experience over there was, uh, you know, professionally and socially was, was great. Yeah. Uh, you spend the first six months going, why don't they do the tornado like they made the F-111? And okay. the last six months going, well, why don't they uh, do that in reverse? So, <laughs> yeah. you know, once you get to know an aircraft and operate it, you really understand. You work within its strengths and uh, yeah. limitations, I think. Yeah. How do you find the culture of the RAF compared to the RAAF? We get the impression that they're pretty much modelled on the same sort of culture. Did you find that when you were over there? Yeah, the uh, I think we've got a lot of similarities with the RAF. Um, you know, they're a medium-sized air, air force, and they know how to get the job done. Um, they've had lots of experience through that, and you know, their bases are a lot of them are ex World War Two bases. So you, you know, you can wind yourself back in time and uh, pretend you're back in in that era on there. Um, you know, they're great aviators, uh, great bunch of guys. Uh, Good rivalry. I was over there actually when we lost a certain rugby uh, tournament, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, yeah, look, it's healthy rivalry, and you know, we've certainly got the respect. You know, those first world air forces that uh, ourselves, the Brits and the Americans. Yeah. The uh, the mission profile of the Tornado versus the F one eleven is it a similar sort of role? Yeah, it was at the time. Uh, I was on a reconnaissance squadron over there, but it was a recce attack, so you know, we would. Uh, 
we had a bombing role as well as uh, reconnaissance, and the F-11, of course, has both of those. Uh, it was, again, designed as a low-level you know, strike aircraft, so we're trained following radar uh, down low in those Cold, cold War days. Uh, also quite manoeuvrable, uh, and they expanded that role out like we did with F-11 into um, anti-radiation missiles and uh, anti-ship missiles, etc. Okay, so back back here to the RWF. How long have you been CEO of Six Squadron? Uh, I've been CEO of Six uh, for 2009-10, uh, and I was actually CEO of One Squadron in 2008. Um, when we merged the two squadrons into one, I transferred across to Six Squadron, effectively the same role uh, with a different uh, unit number. And and that was interesting. It was a great change management organisation to merge two squadrons. We yeah. were a double squadron for the best part of 2009, uh, with you know twice the aircrew, twice twice the maintainers, and twice the number of aircraft. So. Yeah. Uh, and two different cultures, you know, the two F-11 squadrons, but yeah. like all uh, entities, they do have their own culture. So, you know, we focused on that. In the end, it wasn't a big deal. People were professional and we, you know, we moved on and got the job done. What's involved for people who are, you know, like looking at the Air Force as a career and things like that? I mean, commanding officer of a squadron is pretty much right up the top there uh, in terms of operational perspective. So what's the career path been like to get to here and what's it like being a CO? Yeah, it's been, you know, I've achieved a long-held dream. When I first came in, I used to look at my, you know, first CO and think, yep, you know, that's where I want to be. Uh, And there's a lot of people like that, yeah, and it is. Even, you know, chiefs of air forces and uh, air commanders and the like that do the higher-up levels always reflect back on their time as a CO and say it was the the best period in their life. Yeah, it's like being captain of a ship, really. You've got, you know, several hundred people. You're responsible for all of them. You're responsible for the capability, you know, of your aircraft. Uh, The government expects a lot of us, uh, potentially, you know, with the aircraft. You've got to make sure your people are ready to go. You've also got their training, their welfare, and even their, you know, their day-to-day family issues because... If you don't look after those, then those people aren't available to you when you need them. So it's more than just being the boss. Yes. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, so it's, it's, it's sort of like being in charge of a squadron is almost the last uh, step on the rung that you're still hands-on operational. But from here on, it's more desk, isn't it? Uh, there's certainly levels of command at high levels. Like there's the officer commanding of the wing, who oh, you know right. he's the that is a command position of the squadrons. But he is you know one step removed from the people you know at the squadrons. The air commander or the fed commander uh, has multiple wings and multiple squadrons underneath him, but again, he's one step removed as well. And I think that's why it is so enjoyable is that, you know, you are, as you say, direct managing, commanding and leading, you know, the men and women of of a unit. And still getting a good chance to fly as well. That's right, yeah. And, and that's unique, you know, uh, in uh, in the services. Uh, the CEOs of squadrons, you know, flying squadrons, you know, fly. Um, whereas uh, the CEO of the ship is obviously on board his ship, but he's uh, not hands-on. So, and that beca- that's a challenge in itself because you, when you get into the aircraft, you are operating just like one of your mid-crews of, um, you know, flight lieutenant general guys, and then you step back out and become... You know, responsible for those other things. So okay. it's challenging uh, to keep your flying skills up as well as the command yeah. duties. And juggling the fatigue and so on as well of flying versus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 The squadron's converting to the uh, to the Super Hornet. Has that been a, obviously a big challenge for you to, to manage that process? And it's going quite well, we hear. Yeah, I'm not directly responsible for the um, uh, the Super Hornet. That's C- uh, CO1 squadron. Um, he's got the first Super Hornet squadron. But what we have been working together on is transitioning people across. And I'm helped by you know, a lot of people in the 82 wing headquarters as transition teams that uh, look at how we're managing people but you know when you take 250 people in two squadrons in each merge them together into a big squadron and then distill them back out into a new aircraft type 
training those people overseas. There are some people that have had to move on to other aircraft types, so managing their expectations, yeah. uh, their family lives, breaking them away from the F-111 uh, yeah. Nexus. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, all those challenges. But, you know, there's been a lot of hard work going into it, and I think it's been done reasonably well. Okay, so where to for you now, now um, as you wind down with uh, Six Squadron? Yeah, I'm on promotion into Air Force headquarters, so okay. I'll do a few years uh, in Air Force headquarters and then hopefully come back as the 82-wing officer commanding on Super Hornet. Okay, well, great to meet you. Thank you very much for today. We really appreciate all your time and efforts, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Great, thanks very much. And there we are, folks. That's been a, a marathon episode, but uh, Grant, what fantastic comment, and uh, I think no better way to finish it there than with the, with the boss himself, uh, Wing Commander Mika Gray. Uh, interesting to see that he's uh, heading off to, uh, I guess, to uh, fly a desk for uh, a few years. Yeah, it does happen. Uh, not everyone can wind up flying aircraft. I know that's one of the reasons why Matt Hall got out. He realised that he would probably go crazy if all he had to do was fly a desk. So, uh, you know, to get your advancement and to go on to some of the bigger and better things, you've got to fly a desk for a little while and pay your dues, I guess. Well, that's true, but uh, we, we certainly wish uh, everybody that's uh, been involved there with the with the F-111, we wish them well in their future careers. As you heard through there, some some of the people knew exactly where they were going, what they were doing, and a couple of others were perhaps not quite so sure what uh, what might lie in store for them in the future, but I'm, I'm sure that uh, with all the skills that they've learnt uh, in the Air Force, the highly professional uh, training that they've received over the course of their careers, uh, I don't think uh, they'll have too much trouble finding uh, jobs, whether it's uh, still within the Defence Forces or uh, perhaps out on Civvy Street. Indeed. Now, uh, we really wanted to uh, thank and particular Flight Lieutenant Sky Smith. Now, uh, poor old uh, Sky, she had a, a really hard day uh, organising uh, all <laughs> of the media people, but she was the uh, person uh, responsible for uh, organising the uh, the media day uh, at the at the RAF base at Amberley. And uh, boy, did she have a, a tough job that day, uh, herding all of us uh, media and airplane geeks uh, around and uh, trying to get us to uh, stay away from the aircraft and uh, not climb in and out of aircraft where we shouldn't have been and uh, not taking too many photos of the, uh, of the Super Hornets and all this sort of stuff. But uh, she conducted herself in a highly professional manner and uh, boy, uh, I bet she had to take a few Panadols at the end of that day. But uh, <laughs> just a big shout out to uh, to Sky Smith. She did a fantastic job and we really do thank her for inviting us up there that day. Yeah, thanks, Sky. That was awesome. And uh, Grant, uh, one other uh, interesting item that we thought we might uh, just quickly plug. Now, one of the people we uh, we bumped into while we were at the base was, uh, as it turns out, a listener of the show. And we always like to bump into listeners, Grant. Yeah, definitely. It's always great to catch up with people who can give us some feedback and tell us how it's going. And one such person, in fact, was Chris White. Now, Chris is a, an avid uh, aircraft fan and particularly an F-111 fan and he's uh, grand he's quite the videographer that's right mate he's put together a great uh, F-111 tribute video that you can find on YouTube uh, we'll put a, show, a link in the show notes but uh, if you want to do a search on uh, RAAF F-111 tribute you'll find it it's uh, it's got a, a bit of a kicking soundtrack to it from a group called TV Rock the track is called In The Air and apparently Chris knows the folks who put that track together so they've allowed him to uh, use it on his, his video a great collection of uh, segments of uh, F-111 footage and well worth watching. Yeah, it's a very well put together uh, video. So we, uh, Chris, we really appreciate you uh, sharing that link with the audience. And uh, I'm sure if you haven't seen that one already, folks, you'll you'll certainly get a kick out of it. As Chris says, it's better in uh, high def. So if you ever get a chance to see the original, uh, not just on YouTube, it's good on YouTube, but apparently it's absolutely amazing in high def. I've watched it on a computer. I don't have a high def screen, so I've only ever seen it on computer screens. But uh, yeah, watching the uh, Chris generously uh, shared his high def copy with us and uh, pretty impressive. Yep. Excellent stuff. 
So that just about wraps it up for our special tribute effort to the F-111. As you heard through this uh, this episode, I guess, uh, you know, whilst uh, there was a bit of sadness, uh, I guess, that the airframe was going after uh, nearly four decades of service with our nation, uh, there always also seemed to be quite an air of anticipation for the new era that's to come. And of course, not only are the, uh, the Super Hornets coming, but uh, I'll tell you what, if you're, if you're in defence at the moment, Grant, I think uh, the Air Force is where you'd want to be. You've got all sorts of fantastic and exciting new airframes uh, coming on stream over the next decade or so. And uh, boy, it's uh, I, I think too that uh, just looking at Amberley, I'd never been there before, but um, I think that's the base you'd want to be at. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's a lot of activity there. Now, one more thing we also should mention too, Grant, as we're recording this, of course, Amberley is uh, just outside of Ipswich in Queensland. And as we record this, of course, you'll all be aware that uh, Queensland has been uh, inundated with uh, some of the most severe floods in its history. Uh, we're not sure if the uh, base was affected, but we certainly know that uh, Ipswich and Toowoomba, Brisbane, all those sorts of areas were uh, very badly affected by the floods. And uh, folks, we'd uh, we'd like to encourage you to uh, to help out with the relief efforts. Um, probably the best place, I think, to uh, to visit would be the Queensland Government website if you're looking for a place to send donations. Uh, the folks up there in Queensland, they, they really need your help, folks. So uh, that's uh, qld.gov.au slash floods. And uh, just uh, hop on there and see how it is that you can help out our fellow Australians and our Queenslanders in their time of need. And uh, also do keep an eye on what's happening in northern New South Wales and here in Victoria. Uh, some areas of Victoria, such as Horsham, are uh, reported to be having uh, once in 200-year floods, not just 100-year. So it's a pretty interesting time down the whole eastern seaboard. But, yeah, definitely Queensland got hit pretty hard. Yep, and along with the emergency services, of course, the defence forces, they do in, in times like this, uh, very heavily mobilised at the moment in the relief efforts. So, uh, yeah, it's a great job that uh, the men and women of the Australian Defence Force are doing to uh, to pitch in here, given that this is a Defence Force-focused episode. And, uh, yeah, as I said, uh, once again, it's uh, qld.gov.au slash floods uh, for any further information on how you can help them out. Now, uh, Grant, uh, that wraps up episode 51, but uh, episode 52 is going to follow quite shortly. Um, now, uh, this one will be focusing on the Avalon uh, International Air Show, the Australian International Air Show. That's coming up on uh, March 1st through to the 6th down uh, there at Avalon Airport. Now, um, if you've ever been curious as to how the uh, Avalon Air Show came to be, uh, the uh, the great uh, biannual event, well, uh, Grant and I recently interviewed Ian Honnery, who's the, the boss of uh, the air show there, uh, and we had about an hour-long discussion there about uh, the history of how that came about. Grant, it was uh, quite a quite an interesting discussion. Absolutely fascinating. Really enjoyed it and great hearing uh, the history and it was great uh, hearing what Ian had to say about uh, what had been and what had occurred in the past. I really enjoyed it. Yep, so that'll be in episode 52. We'll, uh, we'll probably release that one about a week and a half after uh, this one comes out just to give this one time to get through the, uh, you know, the, the podcasting world. So we really hope you've enjoyed this episode. Once again, a huge thanks to everybody uh, at the uh, Royal Australian Air Force uh, for allowing us to make this episode. We really hope that it uh, did the F-111 crews and uh, the maintenance staff and everybody else that's ever been involved with it uh, justice. So we uh, we really do appreciate the service that uh, that you do in protecting our nation. Uh, so we'll sign this episode off here. Just remember when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.playingcrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. 
production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Thanks, folks.